Welcome to the Great Base Tennis Podcast. I'm Steve Smith along with Nicole Erickson. She's a mental performance coach at the FM Performance Center in Boynton Beach, Florida. Mental performance, episode 112. This is going to be great. Thank you, thank you, Nicole. Nicole Erickson, what a Scandinavian name, the Viking. Tell us how you got connected in sport, why you're so passionate about sport. I've had a chance to listen to Nicole speak many times. With She's worked with our students. Uh, we've spent a year together here at the FM Performance Center. But why don't you just start with your story in sport? Yeah. So first off, thank you for having me. I'm really oh, excited to be here. Yeah. Um, so my family has always been a sports family. I mean, from the day that we could pick up a ball, run around, we were doing that. So <laughs> I've always been in sports. Um, in about middle school, I would I would always change sports. I did gymnastics, taekwondo, wakeboarding, water skiing. You name it, I was constantly changing. I couldn't find something that I wanted to stick with. I tried tennis a little bit, golf. Um, and in middle school, I decided I was going to try out for a sport every every uh, season. season. Yeah. And winter came, and I tried out for basketball. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I made the team as an alternate. alternate and... <laughs> I I was the only one he chose three alternates and I was the only one that came back and came to practice and he ended up putting me on the team so and that was it basketball was life and so uh I played and that's all I dreamed of was playing basketball um it was again it was life I eat slept like everything I did basketball and uh want to play in college want to play professionally and in high school had two really bad injuries two ACL tears, one my sophomore year, one going into my senior year. And that's when I made a big decision my senior year to either just play sports for fun or try to continue to play competitively. And I chose to stop playing competitively, went to Florida State, and that's when I found sports psychology. I was like, this is it. This is my new calling. Oh, that's great. With, um, I just went through a course you put together. I mean – so many things where we go from A to Z, but uh, in overview, um, why don't you just start with the beginning of that course? I think it's very clean, very simple. I think it'd be great for um, anybody in any sport right across the board with parents as well. Mm-hmm, definitely. A parent and child to go through the course together. But why don't you just maybe pick a chapter from that? One I have in my mind from that course is breathing. I always tell tennis players, you can't let the athlete out if you don't breathe. The opposite of breathing is choking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we connect it with brain typing, you know, we have some that are screeching and making too much noise, some that only breathe on the forehand, mm-hmm. some that only breathe when they're winning. You know, like they breathe at the baseline but not the net. Yeah. But um, with, uh, yeah, why don't you get started? We can just go on. I have so many questions on mental performance. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The course really was, the purpose of it was to provide a foundation to all athletes. That was the goal of it, right? And so I went over some really great material in there uh, that gives you, again, that base for mental performance. Um, like you said, breathing. And <laughs> A lot of times we aren't even aware that we're not breathing or if our breathing's really wacky and fast and shallow. And so um, becoming more aware of that and using those techniques, those breathing techniques that I go over in that uh, that course really helps you, again, with awareness and then slowing your breathing down or even speeding it up depending on what your energy is at, at that moment, right? So if you feel sluggish, pretty slow, I gave you a tool there that you change your breathing to a bit faster 
it helps you get energized. Um, but yeah, it's very important. I think the, the main thing, and that's one of my biggest, biggest things I like to go over is self-awareness, just becoming more aware. And that's part of that breathing part, right. That I just went over. It's, it's being more aware of everything, internal experiences, sensations in the body, breathing, because that's where you make the change. With breathing, I have once or twice over the last 48 years um, been very close to bringing tennis players to tears. And when you cry, you breathe in. Mm-hmm. So you and you're around a kid, you just, you just know, you can tell by their eyes, they're just about to start crying. And then you just say, in through your nose, out through your mouth. <sighs> um, and there's all sorts of forms of crying. I mean, one in tennis is just swearing, throwing the racket with, with players breathing in. Um, you know, say, for example, someone's at a, a funeral, they could write a eulogy, but maybe not read it or not speak it, speak from the podium yeah. because of uh, not being able to control the breathing. Yeah, yeah. It's a powerful thing. Yeah. With habitual, when does that start? I mean, don't you think in basketball there's not as many interruptions? And then the, the physicality, you know, up and down the floor, up and down the floor. Mm-hmm. And I know it's a combination of anaerobic and anaerobic. I mean, there's times where the ball is being brought down slowly. Yep. Yeah. But tennis, with all its interruptions, yeah. I think it makes it even more challenging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. I mean, with basketball, like you said, stoppage of play, timeouts, I mean... The really, if you really think about it, like soccer would probably be the most continuous, right? Because it's 45 minutes of just running around a big field <laughs> and then a halftime and then another 45 minutes. But yeah, tennis, I mean, it's every point you're stopping. And it's yeah. how can you recuperate from that point, let go or capitalize on what just happened? Um, and again, using that breathing, whether it's noticing where you're at breathing wise. And then again, if you need to slow it down, slow it down. Keep it the same, keep it the same, right? I like to tell people that I've spent uh, my life saying the right things to the wrong people. But um, one player, a, a young guy, very good, the recommendation is for him to play a lot of basketball because mm-hmm. his ball striking is very good. The Soviet system years ago, the challenge was to be a master of two sports. But I think basketball arguably is the best sport for tennis players to play. Yeah. I know a lot of people would say soccer, but... <clears throat> I mean, I would say ice hockey because ice hockey, you got to use your, <laughs> your, your feet, your hands, and you got to keep your head up so you don't get hit. It's a collision sport. But with basketball, it's a matter of uh, using your hands and your feet. Yeah. Or in soccer. But it, it's, that's the number one sport in the world. Mm-hmm. With, um, with working with an athlete, what's the best approach? I mean, you like to do one on one. You like to, uh, I guess you get into goal setting. You like to do that where, the, when you do goal setting, are the parents there? Or is it just you and the, the athlete? Those are all really Depen- great Depends questions. on the age. Yeah, yeah. Depends on the age. When they're when it's a younger athlete, I like the parents to be there. Um, but any youth athlete that I work with, I, I keep the parents in the loop, if they're especially if they're wanting to. Like I have some parents that are just, especially they're older athletes, um, but they are completely hands-off. They just want their, right? But they're usually like juniors, seniors, so they're going to be off on their own anyway soon enough. Um, as far as individual or teamwork, they, I really enjoy them both. 
because the teamwork or the group setting, so even if it's an individual sport and you're working with a group, it provides a space where athletes are able to share and recognize that the things that they go through on the court is not abnormal just to them, right? That they're not crazy because <laughs> a lot of their opponents, teammates, are experiencing those same things. So there's a lot of normalization and, and validation of internal and external experiences that they're going through because um, a lot of times – I get people sit in front of me and, yeah, I'm crazy. I'm a head case. And you're, I'm like, actually, you're not. <laughs> a lot of us go through these similar things, right? And so the group setting provides that for – and it's it's really – it's nice to have that. Um, whereas the individual settings, it's a little bit more uh, personal where they can share a bit more, where they may not feel as comfortable in a group. Um, and it's really specific to them. So we're able to dive deeper into things that they may be experiencing, beliefs, stories that they tell themselves, um, emotions that they feel, and you know what they feel when they're feeling those emotions, things like that, which is also very helpful. So I, I really enjoy both. <laughs> with, with, with basketball? Yeah. I mean, it's such an inexpensive sport to play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then also, it's a playground sport. People have, I mean, one, they'll have a basket in their driveway. Yep. Um, trash talking, not so much trash talking in tennis. Aren't, aren't there a lot less uh, parents hanging around basketball practice and tennis practice? Uh, from, yeah, from just, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. From growing up, the parents would drop, drop us off and, and leave. And you wouldn't see them until it was practice was over. Most of the time, they wouldn't even come in the gym. <laughs> we would just walk out, and they'd be waiting for us in the parking lot. Um, you're actually sitting in front of this old chair. It's 50-plus years old. Vic Braden, ABD, all but dissertation. Um, so he didn't pursue his Ph.D. He's a, he was a, sports, he was a psychologist, mm-hmm. a child psychologist. And... Um, he had a TV show. It was a short-run series on ESPN called Vic's Vacant Lot. Yeah. And it was about – because he was turned down by – it was UCLA, and he wanted to prove that you could help a kid more through sport than you could, you know, the typical image of going to see the, the shrink and you lay down on the couch. And, yeah. And wow. um, he was turned down. So you actually you turned his back on academia. Um, but what comes to your mind when you think of uh, – and I have had tennis players – Okay, we're going to go to this park. There's three of you. You're going to hang in here. You're going to play basketball. You're going to get beat, and you're going to you got to sit and watch and watch until you get to play again and get beat. Yeah. Uh, what What are your thoughts on basketball? You know, being different in that regard. I think. I mean, yeah, it's a big difference, right? Because as a tennis player, you're you're playing every every tournament. You get at least one, and then if you don't win, you go to consolation. You get like two more, right? Whereas basketball, you don't even know if you're going to get minutes, right? You practice all week, and you might not get you might not get any minutes in a tournament. Um, so it is different. But it, I think for me, that taught me when I was younger, hard work. Like you have to earn what what you have, right? What you get. Um, whereas, I mean, there's special there's aspects in tennis where you learn that as well right but that's just the difference between the two sports and how basketball teaches that um and it's tough it's tough to sit it's tough to get pulled out I, that was my coach when i was younger i was someone so part of the reason why i got into sports psychology is because not only my injuries but i was 
very hard on myself. If I made a mistake, I would beat myself up. I would get stuck in the past and it would put me out like three or four plays. Cause like you said, basketball is up and down, up and down. Like you don't have time to pout or act out because you'll miss, you'll miss the plays. Um, and so my coach, my travel coach, he didn't even have to yell at me. He would, <laughs> I would make a mistake and I knew it too. I'd make a mistake and I'd look over at him and he'd already have a sub waiting for me. And I'd walk, I'd walk over, you know, when the stop happened, I'd switch out. He wouldn't talk to me. I would just go sit at the end of the bench and he knew he didn't need to yell at me because I was beating myself up enough. So <laughs> yeah, I'm going to add that word to my vocabulary, powdered, put on the powder with, uh, <laughs> The politics of team sports, first of all, with team sports, we say the kids learn at a faster rate because there's a connection between the bench and the brain. Mm-hmm. You know, it's unfair, though, the politics politics of it. In tennis, obviously there's politics, but you get to play. Yeah. You know, the old Rod Labor comment, I'll let my racket do the talking. It may be, it may not be the highest level that a player wants to get into, but they're getting to play. Mm-hmm. And there's nobody pulling them out. Yeah. To, to digress, I, I once had a basketball coach say that they thought tennis was so tough because they couldn't pull you out and sit you down for a minute and talk to you and say, hey, you just got to do a couple of things differently. You gotta, you're out there and there's no coaching. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're trying more and more to bring that in. But with um, that actually, <laughs> that expression, excuse me, mm-hmm. anything doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But you, with your experiences, I know you're working with teams now. Yeah. Don't you think that makes someone stronger where they're, you know, they're on the bench and sometimes they're not deserving of being on the bench, mm-hmm. especially in really young kid sports where the, the parents, the coach, and you know, the parents, kids going to be in the starting five or whatever sport it may be. Oh yeah, definitely. And it, it does, it does. And it's a really great, it's a great learning experience really. Cause so I worked for this, um, it was called Positive Coaching Alliance. It's a non-for-profit up in Tampa. And that's kind of, I'd, I was happy, I was lucky to have that opportunity because it really, it was great on my resume getting into grad school, right? And their whole thing was better better athletes, better people. So similar to your, um, to this coach here, right? Because um, sport teaches you. And that right there, right? Even though you've put in the work and you may deserve to be on the court, that doesn't guarantee that you're going to start or you're going to get minutes, Right. Back up if you would. What was yeah. the name of that organization in Tampa? Positive Coaching Alliance, PCA. And how does that work? How do they operate? So every chapter is different. Um, and they have like a few and they have quite a few all around the states. Um, the chapter in Tampa, what they do is they go into, they have, they go into the high schools in the county and they present once a month to 50 selected athletes and teach them about emotional intelligence, leadership, um, bowling and social media, all those topics. So it's around character development and also mental performance. Um, and the whole idea is by going into those high schools and teaching this sort of stuff, then the athletes go out and they show it in the classroom, right? So it's not just on the court or on the field. Um, and so then it's teaching the other kids as well. Hey, like, you know, we got to not bully. We got to be appropriate and respectful on social media, you know, emotional intelligence. I understand my emotions. I understand yours, stuff like that. So it's, it was a really great opportunity. Um, but again, so going back to that, right, their whole thing was showing that sports in general teach life skills, 
right? So just if I were, you know, working at a job for a corporate company or something, if I hit all my numbers and I was doing the best job I could, that doesn't mean I'm going to get promoted, right? Or if I have everything on my resume and I apply to a job and I get an interview, it doesn't mean I'm going to get the job, right? Um, so I think that right there, it is a great lesson because you can put in all the work, but you can't control the result. That's an interesting conversation I have with people as far as uh, the complete undergrad and then to work and then go to grad school. Yeah. That's, that's what you did. Um, so I, it was an internship. internship. So I did not, yeah. Yeah. But I know some people that took a gap year and worked and then went to grad school. Florida State, I think when you walk around a place like Florida State, it's like an Olympic village. <laughs> I mean, it's big time sports. It is. It's awesome. It's a it's a really great place. I um I was amazed. So again, I once I decided sports psychology, I did everything I could to put me in the best position to get into a grad school. And so my senior year, I um, had the opportunity to work as a manager for FSU women's basketball. The facilities, like you cannot believe it. I I was able to go into the locker rooms at the Civic Center, which is their gym, and they play all the home games. They have a separate facility, the training facility. Boys and girls locker rooms, the girls. I mean, it was insane. It was amazing, amazing. Yeah, no, I. Um, I mean, you have to thank football for that. Yeah, <laughs> that is fair. That is fair, uh, especially before I came too. It was uh, we had a really great football team. We're looking good this year too, so I'm pumped about that. I was in Tampa for 15 years, and we used to take kids to Gainesville because Tallahassee's much longer trip and yeah. huge, the swamp that football, <laughs> the football stadium they have is just huge. We, at Florida State, um, it, isn't there like one uh, mental performance coach for like every two teams or, or maybe some teams have their own? How does that work? Yeah, for, at Florida State, so they actually have a sports psychology program. They're a master's program, graduate program, and so some of the PhD students work with some of the teams um, I believe some of the master students work with some of the club teams, so like club lacrosse, uh, the circus. And then I think, f- if I remember correctly, football would use some of the professors, I think at the time, but then they may have branched out on their own as well. And a lot of those big schools, it really just depends. Um, but now a lot of the colleges are making sure they have a sports psychologist um, on staff if not a team. So like Clemson has that, Auburn has that, um, like FAU, they just hired two more sports psychologists. So counselors and training, trying to get licensure uh, for the athletics down there. So, so FAU and Boker next, next door, Florida Atlantic, and you've done work with their teams? Yes. Yes, I have, which is really, it's been awesome. Awesome work there. Mm-hmm. Can you tell a freshman when you start to speak to the group? <laughs> I, I've done many things traveling as a cl- clinician coach, and I tease, and I go, okay, I'm going to pick out who the freshmen are. Yeah, yeah, I've never tried that. I've never tried that. With Yeah, I think it's quite interesting in college sports. A lot of times the, the sophomores are treating the freshmen like they're a coach. I mean, everybody's the big brother, big sister yeah. when freshmen come in. Yeah. And I think they're overall clueless from – transition from uh, actually in sports illustrated years ago tom brady there was a article and he was interviewed throughout the article that every step up you're a rookie all over again mm-hmm. you 
go from junior high football to freshman football to JV football to varsity to college and then the pros. And yeah. Now he, he's 45 years old. So can you imagine he's been playing, um, <coughs> excuse me, in the NFL since, um, you know, some perhaps he, there's a chance that he was in the NFL before some of his teammates were born. Yeah. Yeah. I've never thought of that either. That's, yeah. With, um, one-on-one versus team. Yeah. Um, but still at, say, at Florida State or in these powerhouses, mm-hmm. they'd still do both, right? Definitely. Definitely are doing both. Yeah. 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 Definitely both. Because you want that. Um, if you're working with, if you're working with a group, um, you definitely want that, that opportunity. If it, you know, if it's not with the mental performance coach, you definitely want it with that, uh, the sports psychologist on staff. Um, so that, but with that, you want to make sure the mental performance coach and the sports psychologist are on the same page with what they're teaching. I've coached so many tennis players that have played college tennis and I just know from experience, many of them, when they had a chance, you know, they, obviously coaching is a human relationship, and mm-hmm. they start to talk to the person who's in the corner for mental performance, mm-hmm. and they confide in that person. And a lot of times what they're doing is, unfortunately, knock on wood, is they're putting on the table how many things are wrong with the coach or the coaches. Mm-hmm. That's not so easy, huh? No, that's not. Because so... And that's something that you may encounter during group sessions too, when the team starts, you know, talking about the clicks or the, you know, all the problems going on amongst the teammates. Right. But at the end of the day, they're all a team. And so it's, it's working, uh, making sure when you're meeting with that individual or meeting with that group, making sure that everyone and what they're doing, right. How can we make it work? How can, how can, no one's a bad guy, right? Unless it's like something where it is bad, right? Then that needs to be reported. But other than that, it's okay. This is what you're working with. How can we make it work, right? Because at the end of the day, we can't control other people. And you're going to learn from it. You always learn from it. And so, and really most coaches, all coaches, right, some again, unless it needs to be reported, but uh, best intentions, right? That's like parents. All of them have good intentions, but it's it's learning how to work with that, and that's another really great lesson to learn. Because uh, in the future, when you're not no longer playing, you're gonna have a boss. You know? Yeah, not always a good and, boss. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's figuring out how to work with that and making the most of it. Well, I think with expectations, the opposite of disappointments. Vic Braden used to always say that. With, and this happens with parents, <laughs> parents, <laughs> excuse me, as well as coaches, is the anger covers the hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, the parents perhaps hurt. With, and hopefully it's not that they're hurt that they lost. They're hurt that they had a, you know, the efforts weren't there, the attitude wasn't there. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. With, uh, but I think that you know, I tell parents all the time because I know I've trained a lot of young coaches and they get emotional and I tell the parents that's a good thing. As you said, as long as it doesn't go crazy, it doesn't. One right. of those, it's to the level where it needs to be reported. Mm-hmm. But you know, kind of tough love, suck it up. Yeah, three types of love: soft love, tough love, crazy love. <laughs> With um, coming a bit to tennis, yeah. 
you know, obviously you spend a lot of time with tennis players now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you see as some of the challenges? Um, biggest challenges I would say are um, high athletic identities. Say that again, please. High athletic identities. So they uh, they only see the sport as them, or they are only the sport, uh, and that can be troublesome. With, especially with the amount of training that they do too. Because what starts to happen is their worth uh, will start to be tied to their results, and that's when you start to see a downfall. Um, and that can also lead to burnout, which is not fun. Uh, the other one that I see a lot or hear a lot is, and this I found so fascinating because I just could, I, I couldn't wrap my head around it at first, but because I, at basketball it was the total opposite. But w- what I hear a lot in tennis is, when I play someone that is worse than me, there's a lot more nerves and a lot more fear because they're supposed to beat them. But when I play someone better than me, it's all I'm I'm feel calm. I've heard you say it again. You say it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when they're playing someone that isn't as good as them, so lower ranked, there's a lot more nerves and a lot more fear because they're expected, they're supposed to beat that lower ranked individual, right? But when they're playing someone that's higher ranked than them or around the same, they're much more calm because they're supposed to lose. So if they lose, then, right, that's what's supposed to happen. But if they win, great. Yeah. Whereas in basketball, it was like, <laughs> if you're playing someone that's worse than you, I mean, you see it when teams go up against each other. A lot of times the better team loses focus because they think they have the upper hand and they're calm and they're relaxed and you know and then they they get into a bad situation where they're not winning and then and then that starts that then they start to get nervous and they start to pick it up a bit um so like growing up as a basketball basketball player it was always nice to play someone that wasn't as good as our team because it was like oh this is gonna be easy like let's go let's let's no mercy Let's go. And then when we're playing someone not or better than us, it was like, oh my goodness, we got to bring it. You know, it was more nerve wracking. No, that's great for our listeners to hear. I mean, I'm always telling tennis kids, don't be a tennis snob. Play with anybody and everybody. Yeah. Because they'll become threatened. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there's nothing to win and everything to lose. <laughs> uh, when you said high athletic identity, I think of the number one player in the world, Switek, the Polish player. Mm-hmm. She travels full time with a performance coach. And their theme is. Um, Low expectations, high standards. I like that. And you know, the, the curse really is win. Everybody's thinking about winning. Yes. And as you know, it's not, you're winning. You may not be winning on the scoreboard. You're winning in life, though. Mm-hmm. If you're in there and you're competing. and Yeah, yeah. And that's like, so I really like that quote. I'm going to use that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat that to my, my clients and things. But it's it, it's really that, and it's changing that mindset from results, right? But in life, that's all that's all life gives us. That's all society gives us. We have to win. We have to be successful. We have we have to have all these things, and then we're going to be happy. And it's like, well, first of all, <laughs> success and winning is out of our control because you have someone on the other side of the net or playing against you, and they can bring their A game, and their A game could be better than your A game that day, right? And so that by itself takes the control away, right? And so um, it's so important to shift that mindset to, like you said, and that's part of my approach is what matters to you? What do you want to stand for? What comes from the heart that's going to bring the most fulfillment to you when you're out on the court? 
because and a lot of times what I do with my athletes, it's like, okay, we have success, but we have all these things that mean something to you, right? A lot of times it's like fight and hard work and, you know, uh, determination and honesty and care, all these things. Uh, and you say, okay, if you made it to a grand slam and you won, but it was without all these things, how great would the win be? And a lot of them, like all of them are like, well, then it wouldn't mean that much. Right, because all those things that they truly care about aren't there, and so those are the things that matter. And if if you're not having those things while you're out playing every day, then where's the purpose? Where's the meaning? Where's the passion? But you have to know what those things are and and incorporate them into your into your life because they're not just going to come, right? Especially if we're just focused on results. I like the John Wooden quote: "Never try to be better than your opponent." People look at me, they start looking at you cross-eyed. Say that again. Never be try to be better than your opponent. The competition's in the mirror. Mm-hmm. You know, if you just get 1% better. Every day. And, you know, it's winning's a bonus. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Winning is a bonus. Winning's a bonus. Yeah, I do think that's where the, all the timeouts, not only in between points, 20 seconds, but in between games. Um I've always said in that sense, tennis comes across as much more of a premeditated sport where some sports, it seems like it's much more spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Like someone will, in your sport, growing up, uh, basketball, you throw pass, it's intercepted. You don't have a meltdown in the middle of the floor. You got to transition <laughs> from offense to defense. Right. Where a tennis kid can just self-destruct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would not have done well in tennis. <laughs> like you said, that transition, I didn't make that transition a lot of the times. I could have really benefited uh, from from mental performance when I was younger. Yet, like I said, I'd be out the next two plays. I wouldn't transition fast enough. My head would be gone, and I wouldn't be there. So It's like Michael Jordan. I don't know if it still stands, but he's missed more game-winning shots than anybody in the history of the NBA. But he's not second-guessing himself. He's, he could be 0 for 9. He's just still, still take the shot. Yep, yep. Where Charlie Brown, uh, Snoopy, I didn't invent the double falls. I just merely perfected it. You know, you think double fault, you hit double fault. Yep, yeah. And it's just, well, this is something to ask you too. You've been around tennis mm-hmm. and the self-talk is certainly not original. I'm playing the worst tennis of my life. Yeah. I can't believe it. Yeah. yeah. What are your thoughts on uh, just self-talk in general, but self-talk in tennis? Yeah, that's a great question. So our brains, and this is something that I always talk about, our brains are constantly trying to protect us. So if we go back to evolution and we go back hundreds of thousands of years, right, our brains were trying to protect us from uh, getting in, dying, right, surviving. And so what now, we still have that caveman brain. And so when these things happen, like when bad situations occur and they, we replay them like double faulting and then that keeps replaying in our heads the next time we're up to serve, right? Um or our thoughts are being pushed toward and pushed towards us, right, from our brain, and it's trying to stop us because it perceives a threat. When in reality, we're not we're not going to die, right? We're just we're, we're just on a court and we're hitting a ball back and forth over and right, little right? yellow balls, some white lines. Yes, yeah, exactly. And so it's it's being able to um, allow those thoughts to occur. Right? So if we're thinking like just those thoughts, allowing them to occur and, and creating space between them. Right, the more space that we're able to create, the better. And then it's about shifting focus, um, because allowing those thoughts to just happen and understanding, okay, this is my brain just doing its job. 
it's it's working properly, right? Um, and then creating space, that's great. Now, part of my approach, right, I do incorporate self-talk. So um, I'm noticing, like, right, if I'm sitting here, I'm noticing I'm having a thought that, you know, five minutes ago I messed up some of my words because I got ahead of myself. Right? <laughs> and now I'm feeling a little embarrassed, okay? And so that's just me acknowledging what's going on in my mind while we're having this conversation, okay? But that's part of the self-talk. I'm noticing I'm having this thought, these thoughts. Or, um, you know, I'm someone that I, like, after this podcast, again, I was really hard on myself. After this podcast, I'll leave here, and on my drive home, I'll be thinking about all the things that I did wrong and this podcast said wrong. I'll just go through it in my head. And that's a story that happens a lot for me. That's a story that my brain tells me a lot. It's, it's the, the self-doubt story. You know, or it's the paranoid story that I wasn't good enough. Well, there's two sides to that, though. It's a positive that you're self-critical, but it's when are you self-critical? Right. Exactly. So when it's productive, that's great. If it's going to help me in the future and I'm not spiraling down and it's leading me in a direction where it's going to lead to bad behavior and not, you know, a, a life of fulfillment, then I got to get out of that t- tangle and hooked thoughts and right I gotta separate myself but if it's something that's gonna motivate me and help me to become better and lead me in a direction where I'm gonna get the most benefit out of it then yeah that's great I don't need to do separate or anything like that right when you said brain protection Mm -hmm. our brains are trying to protect us I also think that there's also ego protection (laughs) yeah you know people are trying to protect their ego what are your comments on we always say Ego's the enemy, ego kills, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. ego gets in the way. Yeah, yeah. And that's something, so it really just depends on the person, right? So, like, depending on what the ego is, is trying to do and protect, right? Like, yeah, you're trying to protect your ego, right? Who you are, what you're perceived as. And that's, that is part of protecting yourself. Because back in the day, right, if we're, we're thinking about, like, I want to show that I'm strong and I'm smart and I'm not dumb, right? Because I... I care what other people think about me. Well, back in the day, if you were, like, again, caveman days, if you were by yourself, a lone wolf, the likelihood of survival was slim to none, right? So you wanted to be a part of a group. You wanted to belong. And if you're not belonging, (laughs) then then that's not good. So, and those same things occur today. So we want to protect ourselves and how good we look to other people because we want to be a part of the group. And so that's just another story that our brain tells us um, on the daily, right? Because, again, we, we want to be confident. We want to be perceived as strong and, and um, worthy and belong. That sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. In tennis in America, it's quite difficult. I mean, from coast to coast, east to west, it's uh, 3,000 miles. Yeah. And I spend a lot of time in different countries. I think of being in Sweden. And both my boys spent time in Sweden. My son Connor, for example. Yeah. You know, Edberg's hanging around at practice. And, you know, there's only 10 million people. They all live pretty much in the southern part of Sweden. Mm-hmm. And, but I do think that's a problem in America where um, kids don't have that sense of belonging. Like, gee, I'm not good enough to be in this group. Mm-hmm. But exposure... Uh, this little club, I mispronounced the name of the town, Vexho, mm-hmm. is, you know, Edberg's hanging out, hitting with the juniors. Yeah. And, you know, there's stories like, say, um, Pete Sampras, when he was 17 years old, he had a huge win. He beat Elliot Telsher. Mm-hmm. 
um, it was Indian Wells until she was top 10 in the world, but they grew up in the same club. Yeah. And Edberg, excuse me, I'm jump back, Sampras, he had no awe factor. He wasn't in awe of Elliot Telshire. It's like I, he, he felt like he belonged yeah. at the same facility, even though he had jumped from practicing at the Jack Kramer Club to playing him yeah. in a major tennis event. Wow. Could you imagine that feeling? It would be an amazing feeling just to be a part of that, right, that group. I think now with cell phones, oh. kids, um, working with uh, Coach Nicole, yeah. We don't really have a squad. We have a revolving door. Mm-hmm. And I know uh, during the winter months, you did several classes. Yeah. And all those players speak so highly what you did for them. With a squad, so if you had the same kids every day. Yeah. But uh, but kids come in now with a sense of belonging. I mean, I think you have to at least talk to the person next to you. Yeah. You go to lunch and you, you can't be on your, your phone. No, no. So how much are social skills part of being stronger mentally. I mean, we have kids, kids where I'm saying, hey, say hello to the parents when you come in. Say hello to everybody. Be a greeter. Hi, how are you today? Right. And it used to be, like, I would never call a parent by their first name. It was you meet, it was a Mr. and Mrs. It would always go, hi, Mrs. Alberg, how are you today? Yeah, yeah. And that's gone away. Oh, yeah, it has, it has. But the social skills, um, how does that tie in with mental performance? I mean, I think it definitely does, right? Like you said, belonging in order to, you know, you got to talk to people. You got to interact. And I, like you said, the the further uh, technology progresses, the less social interactions we have. Uh, and I think it's troublesome. I, I don't think it's good, especially going back again, going back to the, the belonging piece and like wanting to be a part of the group. I mean, it's no longer small groups anymore. It's like these big, huge groups that we're a part of because of what the internet provides us, right? Like the groups that we're a part of on social media are thousands of people seeing your content every, right? Whatever. And it's, it's so much. And that's, it's like, how can we keep track of all of that? And it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of time and energy and way too much so the the social interactions and it's it's different because and even for me like when I was younger this is funny because my (laughs) my boyfriend and I talk about this all the time we didn't sit in the house and watch tv all day or play video games all day we were outside all day like my best memories are playing manhunt and I had a friend down the street Cody that's why part of the reason why I fell in love with basketball because he would drive down at like noon every day of the summer and we'd play basketball until like dinner time <laughs> you know that was what we did and now I feel like there's more of like sitting inside being on the phones and there's less social interaction and why it ties into the mental side again it's being able to share your experiences and create a sense of belonging because if you're on your phone how are you going to create a sense of belonging with the people around you right so yeah. with your work mm-hmm. um, you find it's Mainly tennis players that are homeschooled? Um, no. I've actually there's some soccer players, golfers. <laughs> so there's a there's a baseball players. I'm so not, when you work with a team, some of them are homeschoolers. Uh unless it's a high school team, but yeah, some travel teams. Yeah, homeschool or individuals, homeschoolers. Yeah. I do think in tennis, um oh there's a, a, an upside, a downside to everything, but I do think with the, the kid 
the kids that are homeschooled. I mean, school is a child's workplace. Yeah. And, you know, they get to the point, especially if they start really early, mm-hmm. um, there's very little interaction. You know, yeah. It's getting in the car, the parents driving to practice, and they're with the same small group of tennis players. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's, I mean, they certainly experience real world, you know, yeah. going out to tournaments and all the craziness with that. But right, right. I think there's definitely something missing uh, when, with the, you know, before that didn't exist. I mean, yeah. Um, you, know, you mentioned bullying. There's just like anything and everything goes on in the hallways of a school. But oh, yeah. Not, yeah. So, not so much. Tennis is, uh, again, I don't think that, that tennis kids regulate other tennis kids like that, like, like, it, like that happens in other sports. And it, I do have definitely most of the tennis players. I have had the, like I said, the, the, and I was surprised by it, right? Like a baseball player that's homeschooled um, or a diver, or, you know, all it's random. But definitely more, more so tennis players, like all of them. I feel like majority of them are homeschooled. And it is different because you aren't, you aren't interacting with, you know, you have seven periods in a day and it's 20 through new, 23, 25 new people that you're going into the classroom with, right? Let me ask you this. With high school football, I'm always telling people, mothers, fathers, boys, girls, go watch the double sessions in the back of high school in August. Yeah, two-a-days. Two-a-days. Yeah. But in tennis, most kids are doing two-a-days. Every day. In tennis, but that's not true in other sports, right? They're not doing oh, volleyball no. twice, basketball twice. No, no, not at all. I'm trying to – I don't think I've ever – in my time that I've worked, I don't know if I've ever encountered two-a-days with other athletes. Maybe not not the way that tennis players do it, right? Because it's like every day for tennis players. Um, but as far as two-a-days, maybe a couple here and there, but never consistently. I think tennis players should cross-train where, again, to take that second sport, you use basketball, like say Marty Fish and... Andy Roddick both played on the same high school basketball team. And they, yeah. they did it for fitness. Mm-hmm. But that's that's a lot more fun than going to the gym. Definitely. I agree. Play, I some, agree. play some basketball. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. That's something, but, and I feel like that's something in every sport. So many athletes are specializing at a, such a young age, and they're not, they're not cross-training. They're not multi-sport athletes. Like, it's very rare to, to meet a multi-sport athlete uh, because of the demands – that one, the athletes and, and the families feel, and then also the demands from the teams that they're on. You know, I've met I've met soccer players where they're not even allowed to play for their high school teams. They're only allowed to play for the travel team, right? And so it's, it is. And even I did that. So when I started playing basketball, I was running track as well to get a workout in the spring. And my junior year, I stopped running track, and I became only basketball I'm asked this question. Let me ask you. Mm-hmm. It maybe varies from sport to sport, but when do you think people should specialize and just start playing just one sport? Uh, that's a hard question. It's so hard because, like I said, the demands now, it's like, who's going to be the best and what do you need to do? And it's, oh, well, you need to play that sport every single day and only that sport, right, in order to be the best. And I don't know if anyone's really ready to stray away from that now because of the culture that it's created. Right, because everyone's trying to be the best one, um, and so if and that's something going back to that athletic identity, that's something that you run into. It's like I can't take a day off. I can't. Like a lot of athletes struggle with taking a day or two off 
when really, like, you know, body-wise, physically, you you need that. And then yeah. they, they soon find that mentally you need it too because you're going to eventually overtrain, get stale, then burn out. Um, but a lot of them feel too guilty or they get nervous and anxious because there's someone else working and they're not. Um, so that's a tough, it's a tough question. Um, maybe I, I, (laughs) I find it hard to say because I think everyone should at least try to do some other sport. And again, it goes, some get nervous playing other sports because injury, right? Like tennis, it's not a contact sport. Um, and so going into a contact sport, golf, not a contact sport. So then going and playing something like that, they may feel like the likelihood of injury is higher. And so they don't want to put themselves in that sort of situation. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of variables to it. Um, but I would say as long as possible, try to do multiple if you feel comfortable and able, right? Yeah. Even to cut it down where say when you're really, really young, you're trying everything like you did you know, through elementary school or even the latter stages of elementary school, then if you're playing three, then knock it down to two. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I agree with that. I do think, uh, we have a visiting coach, we were talking about that just today, is mm-hmm. in tennis, I think the number one reason is money. You know, that a, a, a teaching pro, <laughs> for example, well, yeah, let's have the five-year-old, six-year-old come out every day mm-hmm. instead of saying, no, no, let's just teach you technique and then go play basketball, go play soccer, go become an athlete. Yeah. But yeah. at a very early age, you used to start off with, you use the word foundation, is to have a technical foundation in tennis. Okay. Uh, so many people come to us, so they're, they're 14, 15 years old, and it's almost like we have to take them back to the, the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that you touched on, right? And I think this also goes in part with the technology stuff, but like, you know, if you're outside playing all day, whether it's catching a football or running around and kicking a ball or playing kick, whatever it is, right, you gain a different coordination. You're using different muscles, right? So going back to you, what you just said, the technical foundation, right, the physical coordination foundation um, is so important. So, yeah, I agree. I agree with you on that one. Basketball coach, uh, Coach K, I can't really pronounce his name, Krzyzewski? Oh, I don't know. Coach K. With, <laughs> coach K. With uh, Coach K's easier. He says that years ago, that the players he had, mm-hmm. Duke, Duke forever. I was going to say. Is um, the players of yesteryear were more athletic. They're bigger, stronger now with, the, with the nutrition, with what they're doing with strength development. Right. They're doing a better job in, in the cafeteria, a better job in the gym, mm-hmm. on the track. But the reason for that is they play different sports. Yeah. That's not surprising. It's not uh, there's surprising. a book called Range. The specialist versus the generalist. Mm-hmm. And the generalist, and that, that applies to life too. Oh, that, yeah. You know, throw everything at them but the kitchen sink. Um, <laughs> but I, I like what you said about time off is, um, you know, if someone just takes, say, 45 minutes mm-hmm. and they do tennis work for four <laughs> 45 minutes, even if it's for 15, mm-hmm. the way the brain works, um, it changes as good as the rest and then go out. But the problem is there's no pickup sports anymore. There's, you know, you, you don't drive through neighborhoods and seeing kids play pickup sports. No, no, you don't. And it's, it's, yeah, it's crazy. 
it's it's strange it's strange because I, again i just remember when i was younger just running around my neighborhood with all the neighborhood kids and we were just outside and playing a bunch of different sports whatever we could find you know but all these athletes you work from other sports they just practice once a day for the most part for the most part yeah for the most part Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Especially the ones that go to school, right? Like you, like you said, when you're homeschooling, you have that flexibility to, yeah. to. But when you're at school, um, you know, you show up at seven thirty, and you you're done around two or three, and then you also have homework and you know a few hours of practice. So. Oh, we definitely do two days. A lot of it, yeah. you know, players are coming in for a, a short visit, mm-hmm. you know, a couple weeks, a couple months, and with that it's not always run and gun. And I know that's a basketball term, but we're not always just drilling and feeding balls and playing points as they go slow. And we have video work and classroom work. Mm-hmm. It's um, mental toughness, yeah. mind vitamins for mental toughness. Vince Lombardi, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. You know, this week, the hurricane in Florida, mm-hmm. um, there's so many examples in life. Yeah. And I do think that's something that in tennis, the disease affluenza, you know, the parents are affluent mm-hmm. and everything's paid for. Everything's easy. It's like they have their own chauffeur. I always, when I go into the coffee shop, Panera, I used to, <coughs> I find myself because they have great internet, yeah. go there, you know, in between practices or at a tournament and say, okay, the kid's on the other side of the counter in the real world. Um, but with, other sports, um, do you find that there's entitlement like there is in tennis? Like they just deserve this life? Uh, a mixture, I would say. A mixture. And it really, it just depends, you know. Um, it just depends on their situations and, you know. But a lot of a lot of the times I just feel like they're trying to find their way, trying to make sense of it all, you know. And that's just how they make sense of it. It's not right or wrong, but it's, hey, how can we, how can we make sense of this? You know, how can we be the person that you want to be? And maybe that isn't the entitlement and the, but that's just what they perceive it as. I should remember the name of this woman, but years ago, it was a USPTA Tennis Advantage article, conscientious neglect. You know, the parents shouldn't be climbing the fence. They shouldn't be pacing back and forth and chanting yeah. commands to their to their player. But consciousness is like, you're, you really care, but you kind of play that game where you're the furthest parent from the fence. Yeah. And um, how much does your work where you get involved with coaching the parent? I mean, we asked the question, um, actually it was Dave Anderson, we asked uh, Jim Lair, mm-hmm. who you and I have talked about. Yeah. Anderson's question was, who needs more mental training, the parent or the player? And that obviously is, it's not an answer that goes straight across the board. But yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts on dealing with parents? Um, so my perspective on parents is investment and awareness. And um, they only know what they know, right? And so going back to, you mentioned uh, expectations earlier, Communication and expectations. I heard that uh, earlier today, and it really stuck with me. But they have so much investment into their child, and it's because they want what's best for their child, right, most of the time. They just want their child to be successful and be happy and become this 
great adult human being. Um, but with that investment, like our society teaches us, when we invest, we want result, right? We want result. And so um, as parents becoming more aware of, hey, this is my investment, but what, you know, and what do I really want for my child out of the sport? And that can be a tough conversation. And um, and it takes time, just like it takes time with athletes to, to see things, right? And it's if they want to see those things and make changes with those things. Some, a lot of the parents that I do have where they bring their athletes in, they – they want to learn. They're like, anything that you can give me to help me be a better parent for my child, please, like, please work with me um, on that and tell me what I can do. And it's it's a touchy subject, but it kind of goes back to your coach, coach question. It's, again, it's investment and time and money and um, wanting best for the team, wanting best for your child and it's how how do you how are you executing that becoming more aware understanding what your expectations are and then how are you communicating those things what is your feedback in the investment the return is not the win now i mean it's not instant coffee mm-hmm. you know it take, takes time and not everyone has the same learning progression right yeah but we all want instant coffee going cuz that's what we get every day all day nowadays <laughs> Instant. Well, the parents, um, they are the number one fan, number yeah. one, number two fan. Yeah. And fan is, um, is short for fanatical. You know, they, they, you know, parents, obviously, they want to talk about their kid. Yeah. They'll, they'll talk about their kid all day. All day. All and, day. Um, in tennis, we have the UTR. It's, it's really not a rating. It would be a rating if we had UTR 9, UTR 10, UTR 11. But if you have 9.2 and... 9.3, it becomes a ranking. Mm-hmm. And I know parents that, you know, some of the dads, for example, they, they used to look at the stock market every minute, and now they just look at, <laughs> now they just look at every kid's UTR. And who, yeah. who, who played this weekend? And where, yeah. where were they? What was the score? And, and I just shake my head. But, you know, some of those things, they didn't, it didn't exist before. Mm-hmm. I really feel bad for young kids they, because, you know, a coach can just push a few buttons on a computer. Mm-hmm. And they know how the kid did, <laughs> did match by match, how the kid did in the sixth grade. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for, for the kids, we, we also want to tell them that they also know that if you didn't play the backdrop, you know, you didn't play the consolation. Mm-hmm. You know, how many, how many times were you injured and couldn't play the backdraw? Mm-hmm. But um, you know, pressure is a very interesting thing. And I think that's obviously your line of work is you can't eliminate it, but you want to reduce it. So and I so what I say is you build up the capacity to um, to handle pressure to take it on kind of like resistance training in the gym. So the more that you lift, the stronger you are, or like you know endurance on the court. Right, you strain yourself, you stress yourself in order to last longer, last longer than the opponent. And so I I see it, I view it as um, building up the capacity to handle as much pressure as possible. And how can we do that, right? So, so diving deep into those anxieties, into those worries, into and really bringing them to the forefront and saying, okay, when we bring them out, let's handle it. Because in that moment where, you know, the dream, you're at the Grand Slam for the first time in the finals or you're playing in front of a bunch of college coaches, there's no stopping that, those pressures for coming full force for you. And you got to be prepared to take it on. Um, 
And at times, reducing it does does help short term, but long term long term is a question. Does it help long term? Um, and so I, I I do the opposite. I help athletes take on as much pressure as possible. Like Lee Trevino, the golfer, you said, well, no, he's he had to make a putt that was worth a hundred thousand dollars. He says oh, that's boy. not pressure. I used to play people for ten dollars and not have any money in my pocket. <laughs> that was pressure. That was pressure. <laughs> With with pressure, yeah, there is peer pressure, there is parental pressure, coaching mm-hmm. pressure, pressure everywhere. But in the end, I tell people, self-inflicted pressure. But I like what you said about <clears throat> it builds up. I tell so many of these young tennis players, they want to play college tennis. Yeah. And they really haven't, the parents too, they haven't seen college tennis matches. Yeah, they want to play college tennis, but they haven't seen college tennis matches. But to be at a college tennis match, especially if it's in a tournament. Yeah. And it's three all. Only one match left on the court. That is. It's a moment. Your team wins. Yeah. And they, they go, say, to the quarterfinals. Yeah. And it's such a big stage. Yeah. And then if, if they're freaking out and it's a local yokel 10 and under tournament, it's only the fourth tournament they're playing. Yeah. And it's just the beginning of a long, long journey. Right. Right. But it's that experience that helps with, you know, building up the capacity to handle it. And that's what you hear with the, um, right, like the Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, Djokovic. They've experienced being on the grand stage so many times. It's almost like they have an advantage when they go out there and play again on the big stage in front of everyone against someone who's played for so long. Now, flip side, that pressure of, well, I'm supposed to win this, right? I have to win this because that's who I am. But... Yeah, through their experience. I mean, they, they practice so much under that pressure. Oh, then the distribution of money. I mean, those players make so much money. Yeah, yeah. And they have a team. They have an entourage. Yeah, yep. They have a physio. They have, I mean, they have the whole nine yards. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it gets to the point where they have a publicist and all that. But just <laughs> there's so many people that are trying to make it. And the distribution of money that they, they don't even have a coach can't afford a coach and there's um with um yeah people always ask you know what level do you have to be at to make money and it really depends what country for a woman at one point nishikori was making more money than nadal wow it's just because of the endorsements from japan yeah um but because there's so many sports in america young american <coughs> that's ranked pretty high they uh they're they're you know, they could be a hundred in the world and they're worried about breaking even at the end of the year. Wow. So there's that, there's that the war of financial attrition as well. Yeah. I think that's one nice thing about um, team sports is the players are not paying for the bus. Mm-hmm. You know, there's meals and right. the tennis players, Travel. they're just totally on their own. Yeah. And the burden, and like here in the U.S. really is on the family. Yeah, yeah. You hear that with golf too. You know, I've met some... Um, amateur golfers trying to make it, and that's you know similar situations, just trying to make it, trying to get their dream, and it's it's tough when you're you're on your own. Right? Uh, I like to listen to commencement speeches. The the naval commander who uh, first thing you do is you make your bed, and then yeah. there's a sense of accomplishment. Now there's a book, make your bed, and all those little things is you make your bed. And when you find out stories behind the stories, the backstory is always more interesting is that 
know, people have been pressured to, you know, do their homework and show up on time and do the right things. And mm-hmm. it has to start early. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And it, it goes back. So I had this one coach, um, my high school travel coach, and he was similar to how you coach all about the technique, all about the fundamentals. The first hour of, cause we would only have two hour practices three days a week, but he would preach fundamentals. First hour was stations and every station was three minutes and we were practicing the fundamentals um, of every skill, right? Different. I mean, I can remember, but he's the one. And then, you know, he'd say, you have to go home and you practice this. Like what you said, 45 minutes a day, you run a you run one to two miles, you do your ball handling drills, you do your form shooting, you do your shooting, then you're done. Like you have to do it. You have to you right? Like that's how you build the foundation. That's how you get better. Um, and so lots of, I really resonate with you when you talk about your coaching because it just reminds me of him. And that's that's really what, um, you know, my hard work back then was. But, yeah, starting at a young age, I think some of these parents that are getting into the mental performance coaching with their kids young, um, they're doing their kids a really great service because they're starting those habits and learning young. And so when they encounter those challenges as they get older, they're going to have the skills in place to where it's muscle memory, right? Like it's in the back of their hand um, where they could just pull it out of their toolbox and say, oh, yeah, here we go. Like I know how to handle this. I have the tools. I have the skills. Circle this question around the basketball. Yeah. With John Wooden, Uh late John Wooden. I have a film. I'd have to dig it out of my library, but – He's teaching these UCLA blue chip recruits mm-hmm. how to put their socks on so they won't get blisters. Yeah. And it's like, are we really watching this? I mean, I have, I have the film, but that's what he put his players through. And he's got these best, the best players in the country, and he's, okay, today we're going to teach you the chess pass. And they're looking around. But in, in the NBA, um, years ago in 92, people said that no other country would be competitive with the U.S., but I've been told that coaching has really improved around the world and um, in basketball and other countries. Mm-hmm. Where in, in the NBA, uh, do you follow that enough to, to have a, a comment on, you know, is that so much different than, a lot of people say it's different than college basketball and kind of like anything goes and it's not so much team play. And- yeah, I've had some conversations around it and I watch here and there. Um, they're more of like managers rather than like coaches because the players are so experienced. They kind of just, you know, they run the court and the coach gives advice and things. I've heard, I've heard that whole story. Well, I think that goes to pro tennis is the mm-hmm. tennis player is the boss, not the coach. The tennis player is the boss. So yeah. and in the NBA, I think these marquee players mm-hmm. um it just seems to be where and again i know so little about the sport but it just seems to be loosey-goosey and i think the same thing in, in tennis is that the better player the better someone becomes in tennis the more coaches that are in their inner circle mm-hmm. the more people that talk to them there's people that we call them merchants of flesh they're at the tournaments and they're handing out business cards yeah you know, they coach they want to coach the kids about to score and um I don't think it's so much the kid that changes that the people around them change. And what are your thoughts on that? When, when, when kids start to win early and they get too much attention because they're winning early. Uh, 
That's a good question. Always told that they're going to be the best and they're, they're so good. I've seen two sides of it, right? Um, the one side is they stop working as hard. They become complacent. That's one side. Um, and the other side of it is they become very, very fearful, fear of failure. That just kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier when you hear the kids, you know, they have a lower UTR than me, so I can't lose those those kids that are constantly being told that they're the best and they're supposed to be the best. They have an identity around that. And if so, if they lose, then they're not who they who they are. Right. Yeah. And so that really that's that's what I I tend to see. Um, So both sides, it just really depends on the person. Germans have a great word, Christmeister, circle champion. I did that on the board today talking to a few players. Okay, so you have local tournaments. Mm-hmm. Say say it's even like a high school team. So you have competition within the team, make the, make the lineup or even go from freshman to JV to varsity. Yeah. But then it's, you know, district, sectional, regional. Um, I guess it's conference first. It's, it would be team, then conference. You know, so you, you, you get to the point where it's regional, it's national, it's international. There's just, it's a ripple, it's a ripple effect. It's, it's a pretty big circle. Yeah. And they are so much just in their own backyard and they don't know it. They don't realize it's just backyard mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, even here in the U.S. when you're playing national tournaments, <laughs> to do the work on, well, how many kids are playing tennis in the U.S.? Yeah. I always tell people they do really well in national tournaments. Well, just multiply by 165 now. Because there's approximately 165 countries at play. Yeah. Wow. And that, I guess you just made me think of when I was playing basketball. I remember I went to my first showcase tournament, and um, we weren't even playing in the highest division. And you, I just remember convention centers full of full of basketball courts. And you walk in, and there's these girls playing in the highest divisions. You know, they're the ones that are going to the, the big schools. You know, and they were just all of them were like five eleven and taller, just you know, crushing it. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh, five six West Palm Beach girl, just trying to make it. You know, probably playing one of the I don't even remember what division I was playing in, but um, so that was eye opening for me just to go off of what you were saying about you know, the conver the conversation uh earlier just now with the <laughs> the the court is big, right? It's not you're just not playing in in your back court. There was there's a story that my dad always would tell me when I was younger. He said uh his wrestling coach would always tell them, you know, you may you may be the best here, but you can go somewhere else and someone will crawl out of nowhere and they'll beat you. You don't know. You just never know. And that shouldn't stop you from, you know, just because you're the best here shouldn't stop you from continuing to train um, and pushing hard. Uh, so that's always something that stuck with me, that story. Uh, Billy Jean King, I think this is a great comment. The reason you want to win is so you can play again. You know, I, just, I want to win so I get to play again. Yeah. You know, a, you know in, in tennis, the, the knockout tournament, you know, oh, you lose and you're out. Mm-hmm. You know, they do have back draw. Uh, but, you know, some kids will, the triple crown, they lose in the main draw, they lose consolation, they lose doubles. And the numbers are frightening on how many kids don't go back for a second tournament. Wow. 
because when people sign up for a tennis tournament, a lot of times they're just not ready to play a tennis tournament. They don't know any better. It's like you said about the parents. They just don't know. Yeah. Don't want, don't know what they don't know. Yeah. Yeah. With, um, in tennis though, I think it happens for sure. Just so people get to a certain point in tennis, maybe not in other sports, but fundamentals are not even addressed. Mm -hmm. I can understand where someone, okay, they're going to play college tennis, but they're going to be there four years. If they register, they're going to be there five years. If they have a hole in their game, they need to deal with that. Mm -hmm. But I do think that uh, there's a big difference between the developmental side of tennis and recruiting. Yeah. You know, we pride ourselves on the fact that, you know, we're not, we're not recruiting, you know, we're not, you know, giving out scholarships. We're not an academy with so many kids that we have a backroom deal where, you know, 10 to 20 kids are on a scholarship Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with, um, in basketball, you basically have to play through your school, correct? Or you could, you could, you you eventually, I mean, you can play club basketball, but Mm -hmm. the best kids in the United States play high school basketball, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're playing high school and travel, but even the travel, like my travel team, we would raise money so we could go to tournaments you know? But that's there's a season that's just the high school season. It's oh, not, yeah. they're, they're not both at the same time. No, 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 no. There's a high school season, and then travel ball starts in the spring throughout the summer. You know, the my father used to use the word prima donna. It's not the it's not the kids' fault, but the individuals become bigger than the program. And in the U.S., kids are not playing high school tennis, and really? they and they so they're not playing for something <laughs> a team. They're not playing for something bigger than themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a whole different type of pressure. Yeah. When you have to do it for someone else. Yeah, it is. It is. And then it's interesting when they do go to college. They've been playing this individual sport all their lives, and now they got to be a part of a team. And they have to make lineup. And they <laughs> they are playing for something bigger than, than I, just I, themselves. I, our parents who listen, uh, a lot of the kids that we've had um, are conditioned a little bit better than those that, that perhaps that we don't train, mm-hmm. um, that a college coach would say, no, they have to learn to be on a team. They have no idea how to be on a team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I have some fun with that where I don't, I don't let nicknames stick, but call somebody I, me. They only use two pronouns, I and me. Hey, I, me, over here. <laughs> Everybody know I, me? And it's just I, me, I, me, I, me. Oh, too funny. But that's how they've grown up. You know, that's how they grow up. They don't even carry their own bag. You know, the turn oh, wow. the tournaments the parents are carrying the bag. And yeah, yeah. With um mental performance. Um Jim Lair's definition of mental toughness is to eliminate the it's not actually his, he would say that. Yeah. It's comes from Reiner Martin. Uh, eliminate the external stimuli and focus on the task at hand. And with Lair, you do hear Lairisms, you know, throughout Interviews with athletes. Mm-hmm. The task at hand, I think that's where people um, are not in the moment. Not, okay, what do I need to do shot by shot, ball by ball, movement by movement. Right, right. That's a big thing that I, I talk about, controlling focus, being in the present moment, um, and learning how to to recognize when you're getting distracted, right, when you're not present. So whether that be you're in the future or the past, right, you're worrying what's going to happen or you're angry with what you just did 
uh, or you're angry with what you did in the first set, right? Um, but you have to recognize that. And I think that's one of the hardest parts because we get into this spiral, right, where thoughts are just flooding in and our emotions are high and it's like you're there and there's really no cue to say, hey, right, snap out of it. Like <laughs> you're not here with us right now. Um but yeah, recognizing recognizing that and then bringing yourself back to the task at hand. And that takes practice, just like just like the fundamentals of, of tennis, right? Being able to recognize when you're when you are distracted and bringing yourself back takes practice every day. Every day. And there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, but those are some of the exercises that I give my clients, and that's that is how I would define partly how I would define mental toughness as well, being able to stay focused on the present. We talk, we talk quite a bit about brain typing off the Myers Briggs and the sensates versus the intuitives that they're in the moment. Mm-hmm. You're not thinking about the consequences. It's okay. I'm going to take the shot. I'm yeah. going to have some fun and take the shot. Yeah. With, um, no, I think that, the, um, it's so it's so vast the what you do the mental emotional side. Yeah. I, I tell people that if you can't teach the mental emotional, you know we we could sum it up. We just call it character. You know if you can't teach character, you can't teach technique. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have to you know so focus. Um, you know someone Tim Galloway. They're not you don't see someone in a movie. You know. It's a really good movie. They're absorbed. They're totally in the movie, and then they slap themselves on the thigh and say, "Go, come on, concentrate." Yeah, yeah. They're just they're just drawn in. Drawn, yeah, yep, yeah. And I would agree with you. It is it is a vast concept, and even in the present moment, right? Like we can get lost in the present. Sometimes we don't know what where to focus in the present. There's different areas within the present moment where we can focus. Well, and the present's right. gone. It's, it's gone. Yeah. It's yeah. gone. Right, it's right, gone. right, right, right. So, and it's so fast. It's so fast too. Um, yeah, it is, it is a very, I mean, there's so many different directions you can go with the mental side, right? Um, and part of that, like doing what matters, I feel like is, is like character, but it's what kind of character, like what kind of character do you want to have? You want to stand for on the court, right? Do you want to be the guy that's, slamming his racket, her racket, his or her racket? Um, or do you want to be the person that is more collected, right? Um, do you want to be the fighter, right? Or do you want to be the person that gives up? And then depending on how badly you want that, all right, well, then let's let's work on it. How are we going to get there? Let's learn some skills, and then you got to practice them, right? So they really have to ID themselves. Like what they, um I spent 10 years on a college campus and unfortunately several students became alcoholics mm-hmm. and I went through, I went to the meetings, um, not on a regular basis, but I went to enough AA meetings. The first thing is you got to admit you have the problem. Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. the same in tennis or same in mental performance, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And it might not be right away. It might not be right away that you're, um, and a lot of times, you know, athletes come in and sit down and, it takes time to get there. You know, it's not just like an open book right away. You got to build that relationship. You got to create a space where they feel comfortable to talk about what's going on internally. Cause how often do we actually talk about what's going on in our heads and uh, what we're feeling and where we're feeling that. Right. And then once you're able to do that, um, like you said, 
okay, now I see what's going on, right? But it takes time to to see what's going on, right? It doesn't, again, it doesn't just, hey, here's your problem. Now let's fix it. That can be really overwhelming, <laughs> right? Very overwhelming. Um, and so, yeah, just slowly working toward that and wanting it. I would say the first step is wanting to make change. You, know, you get some athletes and they're like, mm, I'm, I'm just here. Some athletes really want to be there. And those are the athletes where I see the most change and the most benefit of working with them, you know. Um, with the structuring of your work, mm-hmm. mental performance, many times you're talking to them after the heat of battle, mm-hmm. right? You're, I mean, I think you're, there's no perfect scenario, but with if, if the mental performance coach was full time, was at the practice, was at the matches, and yeah. <laughs> but even a tennis coach, yeah, the tennis coach who's coaching the players, say it's just a group of 20-plus players, they're different ages, different levels, they're going to different tournaments. And many, many times the player goes to the tournament without the coach. Um, do you find it difficult to recapture? I mean, if the parents are explaining to you what happened and the player explains to you what happened, mm-hmm. um, I guess film would be a substitute. You could look at film. yeah. You could, you could. And so I think part of it, uh, you know, is really, for me at least, obviously being there and observing is helpful. Like I, when I was in grad school, I had that time. So when I was paired with a team, I was at lift with them. I was at practice every morning with them. And I was able to see their interactions. I was able to see their behaviors on the field. And then when we would meet, whether it be individually or as a team, I could bring those back in hey, what were you thinking? What were you feeling there? What, you know, what was going on there? Let's talk about this interaction here, right? I was able to pull from that. But really it's, I see what I see, but I need to understand how they're interpreting it externally and internally. Um, And so really getting that feedback from them, would it be beneficial to be watching them as well? Yes, it would be. Uh, But I do, I do like to hear from them. And I like to hear from the parents because one, it gives me an idea of, how the parents are giving feedback, right? And, and their um, motivations and their intentions. And from the child, right? When they talk to me about their performance, I hear a lot of what I need to hear from them, right? How they view themselves, their perspectives, their, the way that they put pressure on themselves, right? Just by the way that they talk. And so that gives me an idea, okay, I know what we need, need to work on, and without them even really knowing, right? Um, because it's it's really the person first. It's really just helping them, again, to find out who they want to be as a person and gaining those skills, and then they'll find clarity on the court. You know, if they're hard on themselves on court, they're definitely hard on themselves probably in school too. Most of the time, some athletes are like, I don't care about school, I just want to play professionally, right? <laughs> Uh, but they do it because they want to play college first. Um, but a lot of times they're hard on themselves in other areas too, if they're if they're being hard on themselves on the court. Um, yeah, no, I think when they report to you, the picture they paint. Yeah. And I think that's where sometimes a child becomes a master manipulator because they, they paint a different picture. Mm-hmm. And then also to them, the parents, opposites attract. Yeah. And how one parent sees it versus the other parent seeing it. Mm-hmm. 
it obviously becomes very complex. It can be. Yeah, definitely. I agree. That's why I agree with you. Like if I, if I was able to go watch every single athlete's practice, um, and watch all their games, it would, it would definitely benefit me. Definitely. It sounds like it's near, it's next to impossible because you're working with all these different sports too. Yeah, it wouldn't be. I could ask him for clips, you know, yeah. and I have had that before where, hey, can you watch this? I've gone and watched matches. Um, and again, it's more so me saying, hey, what was going on there? I noticed this in the second set. What was how, how about like? with teams? Do you have intervention where the you, everybody gets in the room like a family and some of the older players may say, you know, you ask, okay, let's, let's have a report on how Sam played. Anybody have any comments on if you were coaching Sam, what did Sam do well? What did Sam not do so well? Let's get one from each. You get a positive and negative from each. Yeah. So that, and that takes time to get to, right? Because at first you just want to make sure that they're comfortable um, with each other. Because okay. you don't, you don't really want to, you don't want to start any uh, butting heads right off the bat. And if they're calling each other out right away, <laughs> then we're doing the opposite of what we want to do. We want to bring them together, right? Um but once they reach that point, then yeah. And it's more so going back to that character and what's the purpose of the team and, you know, how how can we make ourselves each other better? Um, not necessarily going off their play, but more again, more so that, you know, were you being a team player? Did you, after you lost your match, did you grab your stuff and go over and watch your teammates or did you go sit on the bench and sulk? Right? Were you helping out your teammates right after? And so that's really more so where I, um, where we're like, okay, what are some of the positives and the negatives? It's more so based around the mentality and the attitude rather than the the play. Um, sometimes when we do get into play, it's more so, uh, you know, how can we work better together as a team in doubles, um, singles? To be fair, that's more so. Uh, I just I've always stayed with within the player never never uh, critiquing each other on that playing wise yeah in europe that's a big plus where the parents can go to the tournaments but they don't go with their kid mm-hmm. the kid goes with the program yeah and then if they lose like you said they stay and they help out and mm-hmm. um but it's you know so many times player will lose and they're just they just are ushered away right away yeah. Says, "Hey, why well, I lost? But I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a chance to watch the person who beat me." Yeah. But they, they get in the car and they go. They leave, yeah. But instead of being there for the day and say, "Okay, the, I'm gonna be able to do this for my teammates, the people I'm training with," I, I guess in tennis, and again, I don't want to sound doom and gloom, but in junior tennis, mm-hmm. um, that needs to be created. I don't think that people really, players, junior players, really feel like they have teammates. Mm-hmm. It's just them against the world. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not right either. Mm-mm. So yeah, tennis has its has its issues. Definitely, it has its hardships, challenges, just like every other one. We always say uh, from Braden, if a ball comes out of a ball machine at thirty miles an hour and you change the racket phase by one degree, the ball goes six feet further. In tennis, we say that uh, um, we sum up the word psychology and feelings, but then there's avoidance, and it's amazing a kid will have a weak backhand volley and their whole game is built around that weakness where they don't go to the net mm-hmm. for years and years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but they find their comfort zone. Yeah. And then like, then it's like, well, we have to break that comfort zone. Yeah. And they're hardwired if they've been playing several years. 
Mm-hmm. It's like, this is because I, I feel like I can, I could squeak by and win with this. They, they're not thinking in those terms. They're thinking more of a fantasy. I okay. I'm going to go straight to the top. Yeah. We tease and say that it's not true with the, the, the girls as much, but the boys, um, should say young men, young women, mm-hmm. that a guy can be number two in his dorm, number two in the room. Mm-hmm. His teammate can beat him. Number two in this room in the, in the dormitory. And next year he thinks he might be one in the world. It's, you know, you have to like, okay, you have to know where you are. If you don't know where you are, if you don't know point A, you're not going to get to point B. Mm-hmm. But um, I think your sport, we talk about other sports too, but <clears throat> the kids in the driveway shooting hoops yeah. and the ball goes in the hoop. Time after time after time, you're doing something right. Yeah, yeah. And you're, you're measured by your shot. Other things too, but you're measured by your shot. And there's... There's stats for that. Mm-hmm. But in tennis, you're measured by the person on the other side of the net. You know, mm-hmm. our listeners might turn this off if they hear me say it another time. But when Crummy plays Crummier, who wins? Crummy or Crummier? So Crummy wins, but Crummy doesn't know they're Crummy because they beat Crummier. Yeah. And that's what's good about like a swimmer, a high jumper. You know, they've got the stopwatch or they got the measuring tape and there's a lot of honesty involved. Yeah. But um, perspective, why don't you comment on that a little bit? People knowing their level, whatever sport that may be, that mm-hmm. it's a long, long road. You know, they may still be in junior high. Yeah. But what about perspective? How do you how do you reach them on that? Uh, I think exactly what you said as you were talking, right? And something that we said earlier, shifting from it's not about who you're beating. It's not about winning. It's about where you're at as a player and what you're achieving as you go. Right. So I always try to go back to small goals when I'm talking to players to kind of put them in perspective. Uh, and also the, going back to those values, like what do you want to stand for when you're on the court? Are you doing those things? Because that means that you're the best player, the best version of yourself. Um the small goals are, you know, where are you at as a player right now? And let's think foundational, right? Foundational that's going to help your game today. What do you want to work on? And only two things. That's it. Two things. So if you go any more than that, <laughs> you're going to get clouded in your head. We see that a lot, right? You're trying to have the perfect, perfect swing and you're thinking of 10 different things that you have to do, guess what? You're over-focusing in an area of concentration. You're just going to get really angry, and then you're going to probably move into a different area and start to choke and get really tense because <laughs> you're all in your head. Um, so just two things that you can do to really focus on within your game, uh, and that's that starts to shift that perspective from – from winning or did I beat that guy? Did I, you know, did I beat that girl? You know, what's their UTR? How, you know, oh, I beat a six UTR today. Woo, you know, like, okay, let's take a step back. How'd you play? How'd you play? What'd you do well? Yeah. A lot of times, like, I have, I work with these young kids, and every time we get on the call, it's two young kids, it's tennis players. Every time we get on the call, it's, you know, whose UTR is better, winning, losing. And I'm like, hey, guys, let's take it back. What'd we do well today? What are some things that we did well? Did we accomplish our small goals? Right? I, I do that with all my all my athletes because we're all so focused on winning and who's better. At the end of the day, it's like you said earlier, it's the person in the mirror. 
right? We just got to work on ourselves, be the best version of ourselves. Um, part of that going, again, small goals, but then who do you want to be on the court? What do you want to stand for? And what's going to bring the most meaning to you? Because as soon as you get that, you're going to have all the motivation in the world. That's great. Why don't you share some thoughts on journaling? I know some coaches in the past where they've um, – they have the players, they don't talk to them for 24 hours, give, mm-hmm. them, give them some time, but they have to write down, okay, give us some pluses, give us some, some minuses. Mm-hmm. But what are your thoughts on pencil to paper, journaling? I think it's great. I think it's great. I try to promote it. Um, so do, they, do they share that journal with you, or is it just is it private? Or Depends. I'm really big on, eventually I'd hope that they'd share it with me. Uh, some athletes are, but I really, again, I'm trying to create that comfortable environment. So if they're doing those things, I say, Hey, you know, if you're comfortable sharing all of this with me, great. If not, you know, that's okay. Um, but whatever you're comfortable sharing, go ahead and read it to me and let's talk about it. Let's work through that. Um, and that's really how I approach that. Now it's hard. It's really hard to get kids, youth, even like, you know, People my age, it's hard to get us to write things down and journal, like take the time um, to just journal. And a lot of times they don't, uh, because a lot of the journaling that I do, I'll do some, you know, write down your two small goals, write down three things that went well, one thing you want to improve upon. Okay, let's rank them. Okay, you know, how'd you get there? You know, if you ranked yourself one out of 10, you gave yourself a six. Okay, what did you do well in order to get a six? Because you didn't give yourself a four or a three. Right. What'd you do well? Because every time we rank ourselves, it's like, I could have done this, 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 this better. Right. Because we're so good at being critical towards ourselves. Um, so we work on that. But once we start writing thoughts down, like, okay, let's write, go ahead and journal your thoughts. Write down your thoughts throughout a match, throughout yeah. training. They don't like to. A lot of people don't like to do that. Right, because our knee-jerk reaction is always to avoid, suppress, get rid of. Just don't even want to acknowledge those things. Sweep it under the carpet. Yeah, yeah. But guess what? Usually, I like to use um, beach ball. Shove a beach ball in the pool. Right, shove it down, down, down. Eventually, it's just going to explode, and then that's no good. Right, we're only hurting ourselves. So let's let's let the beach ball float around. It's kind of, and that takes, again, that takes time. So it's, it's whether or not they're comfortable sharing that with me at first. And if they're even writing those down, it takes time to get there too. Coming back to technology, I do think that's a negative that with the cell phones, kids don't daydream anymore. They don't just kind of walk around, look out the window and think about things. They're, yeah. they're, they're connected. I heard someone say the quality of life is when you're, you're not online. Yeah. No one can get hold of you. Yeah. You're just off for a walk and. You know, just just looking out the window and just thinking about things. Yeah. But they, when they right when they go to the phone, and then what? Really, so many people want to know about their match, but they yeah. know anyway because it's just crazy that yeah. um, they can follow the score. I mean, or you're off, and the result is on the internet. It's mm-hmm. just in that sense, I I really feel sorry for young people the way technology affects affects them today. Me too. How about with um, the field of sports psychology? In tennis, uh, I know with Brandon Flanagan, he's an excellent tennis teacher, excellent coach. Yeah. And this is a crazy part of tennis in America. There's just so much tennis here in South Florida, there which is, is positive. So there's so many tournaments, so many uh, people that you can play against. But what about jumping ship? I would think that the best, best thing is, just like in tennis, that it's a, 
with working with a mental performance coach, it's a long-term relationship. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not, okay, well, I, I did Nicole's course, and okay, I'm done. Done, no. No. Um, you know, is that is that people, they, they, they jump ship, they go from one coach to the next? Um, so I'm going to answer it two ways. Um, first way is as far as jumping ship and going to a new coach, honestly, I promote that if they feel like they need it because a new mental performance coach. Yeah. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's for them. Right. And so if they don't feel like they're benefiting from working with me, they don't feel comfortable. They don't feel like if it's a good fit, that's fine. Go ahead. Right. Fine. Go ahead. Go find someone that's actually, that's going to help you because that's, that's what I want to do. And if that's not working for you, then I'm okay with that. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I tell people that from the get go, right. Right. When I start working with them, I have two things in place, phone call, 30 minute consultation. Right. And it's, Hey, if, if you don't feel like this is a good fit, I totally understand. It's all good. It's all good. There's plenty of other people out there. And if that's a better fit for you, that's a better fit for you. Because again, at the end of the day, if I'm working with someone and it's we're not meshing, or they don't feel like they can open up to me or talk with me, um, then they're not going to buy in. They're not going to do what I, you know, they're not going to do what I'm saying. Um, I'm not going to hear everything from them. And then how can I help them? So I'm okay with that, you know. Uh, but then on the other side of it, you know, some athletes come in and they work with me for a month and they're like, yeah, I'm good. It's like, hold on, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. Okay. You're good. But like, let's, we got to meet again, you know, in a month or so. It's not just a one and done thing. Uh, you got to continue building these things. And a lot of times what happens is they'll go and then I see them again in like a month or so because they stop doing the exercises. They stop training because it's not something that's really promoted as much. I mean, it's probably hard enough to get athletes to work on their technical game on their own, right? Now imagine their mental game. Uh, And so they usually come back and they're like, oh, okay, I need help again. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I would say that physical trainers, mental performance coaches um, are much more academic. It's more more fact-based. Mm-hmm. Where the coaches in tennis is kind of like the wild, wild west. People kind of make it up as they go along. But I do think that people in, in tennis think they need to always be with a tennis coach. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that they're consistently, well, in the, in the, with the physical training, people come and work with me and, and they come down and we go to the track and go to the beach and get a stopwatch out and, and they have a physical trainer they work with twice a week. And I, I'm going, you may have the best physical trainer in the world, but that individual needs to be fired because you're not in shape. Because it's, 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 it's getting a program from someone like yourself and then following the program. Mm-hmm. So you're actually giving them activities to do. You're giving oh, them yeah. routines to do. Yes, yes. Sa- same as what we do. Yes, exercises to do on your own, right? Whether it's routines or um, drills, like mindfulness drills, right? Anything that's going to help thought separation drills, emotion drills, right? That they can work on on court and off court so that the next time we meet, we can talk about that and continue to work on those things. Because you're not going to, meeting with me once an hour, once a week, is not going to do it. It's just not. And so those activities and those exercises are so important, very important uh, to see progress with what I do. Yeah. And what about um, reaching them through, like, we're both wearing a headset. 
with uh, giving them things to listen to while they run or do you do that? Yeah. Yep. I have, I have a bunch of audios that I provide my athletes, depending on what we're working on that they can listen to uh, anytime throughout the day. Uh, And that's, that's part of, part of the work that we do. What about reading materials? Do you recommend, I know they have to, most of your athletes obviously bombarded with schoolwork, Mm -hmm. but are there like certain excerpts from certain books? I mean, that you say, okay, why you read this, read that. I've done uh, like articles of professionals. So like there was this really great interview um, of Carlos Alcaraz recently, which he mentioned he's been working with his sports psychologist for three years now. So long time, long term. Yeah. Going back to our comments that we just made a few minutes ago, but stuff like that. Never really had them like read books or anything um, or excerpts of anything. I I try to keep it small. Like you said, a lot of times I get calls from all athletes and I already have so much going on. And so I really try to make the exercises something that they're already doing throughout their day, right? Whether it's incorporating things on court, um, eating while they eat, while they're walking around, while they drink water, drive a car, stuff like that. So it's easy to start building those habits because it's already in their routine. And then once they're like, oh, wow, this works. I'm noticing a difference. What else do you have for me? I'm like, oh, I got a lot more for you. Right. And then it's building outside of that. No, I'd love to get a copy of that Alcaraz. It's an article. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And um, share it with people. Yeah. 19 years old. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Incredible. What's one thing you recollection from that article? Him talking about his fears. And they are? (laughs) (laughs) They are um, fear of letting important others down. So he fears um, upsetting, you know, those close to him, and that sits with him. So and that's good and bad. Uh, I think you know, I think it's just what it is. And if he's able to manage that, then he's good. Chris Everett, what a great champion! One hundred twenty, I think one hundred twenty-five matches. Our fact checker will have to look that up. Mm-hmm. Andres Barbosa, 125 matches in a row on clay. And she said that one thing that really helped, helped her, she got to the point where she wasn't playing for her father anymore. She was just playing. Yeah. Because, again, that's external stimuli. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, my Catholic upbringing that used guilt and manipulation, where parents are doing so much for their kids. Yeah. They should be able to regulate their attitude. Regulate their efforts. It's the only two things you can control. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the parents, uh, sometimes you like to say, don't you have a job to go to? Are you going to practice this four hours? Are you going to be here for all four hours? Um, in some ways, if, if someone, a parent is just visiting for two or three weeks, I think, okay, that's great. They can watch all as much as they want, mm-hmm. ask as many questions as they want. But, no, that's interesting about fear. Um, I mean, I think there's positives and negatives to it. I mean, a kid obviously doesn't want to get an F in school and go to summer school. Right. You know, so. It's, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, again, I think it's um, more so, so like going off of my approach, right? It's being aware of those fears and um, knowing how to one channel of fear, right? So acknowledging it, that it's there, making peace with it. 
because it's not going to go away, right? It's not going to go away. There's things that can help, you know, if mom and dad are like, hey, no matter what happens, we believe in you. But even then, like, you have parents that are doing that, like my parents. Oh, my gosh, my parents were great, you know. They were the ones that sit in the stands, didn't every once in a while I'd get a fist pump from my dad, you know, very hands-off. I was determined that my mom didn't have to tell me to go out in the driveway and practice, you know. Um, but I still felt guilt, so when I was before I did my second ACL, my junior year, I was considering just stopping, like not playing anymore. Um, and I remember I was so scared, and I already felt guilt even though I hadn't even decided because I thought I was going to let them down because they had invested so much time and money. You know, my dad would take off work most of July. Luckily, he was I had a parent that was able to do that. You know, and um, my mom did too. And they just take me all over, you know, the south southeast to basketball tournaments, and they pay for all my stuff, you know, personal trainings and my one ACL that I had already done, and and so I had this guilt of even having thoughts about stopping, and but that was me putting that on myself, right? That was thoughts that were coming from me. There was nothing my parents were really doing for other than supporting yeah. me <laughs> that were giving me those those feelings and those thoughts. And I just remember having a conversation with my dad. I don't know how I had the courage to do it, but I did it. And, um, you know, he gave me some really great advice in that conversation and it really helped me clear my mind. Um, so at the end of the day, it really, it's really being able to acknowledge those as an athlete and just make peace with them. However that is for you. And then, channeling it in a productive way right like when we feel fear we get a lot of energy from fear right but it's managing it and using it in a in a productive way not slamming our rackets but maybe moving our feet more well i would say a vast vast majority thankfully of parents realize that sport is just a vehicle you know mm -hmm. and, and and children they've heard that but does it really register where the parent exactly. is saying you know basketball tennis soccer whatever it's it's a it's a vehicle for life Mm -hmm. And I, it just is, amazes me how um, stressed people get about winning. Yeah. I, I think there's many factors. The families are so small today. Yeah. You know, we have kids. I mean, very seldom are there three children in the family. It's either one or two. Yeah. And my mother used to call me Hoosie because I have three older brothers, and she's Mike, Pat, Matt, uh, Hoosie. I always tell kids when. Uh, I know their name, but I call them by the wrong name. Even with group dynamics, many times I do that because I'm, I'm getting something going. I know the kid's name. Mm -hmm. I call them by the wrong name and they correct me. I go, stop. I said, you will not get the job. When you're interviewed, don't ever correct the person <laughs> that they don't know your name. But I, think, I do think with smaller families, um, kids are getting too much attention. Um, it, that didn't happen. So, or if you're in a, a big program, like say, I think that's where basketball is healthier when there's a freshman team, a JV team, and a varsity team. Mm -hmm. It's more of a culture. Yeah. Uh, perhaps a championship culture, but if it's just tennis and it's just, a, you know, it's a small group and um, yeah, it's just so much parental involvement. What are your thoughts on kids getting too much attention? Depends on what kind of attention. Yeah. <laughs> you know, really, because, I mean, too much is too much. Too much of anything's not good. 
right? Yeah. Too much of anything's not good, but... Um, like, can your kid make toast? Right. Well, yeah. If yeah. you're if we're going that route, then... <laughs> yeah. yeah have, they, you, have they ever done a dish? Do they know how to take out the garbage? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Those are life skills that you need, especially when you're out on your own, right? I can make people cry. I start telling stories about housing tennis players, and some kid goes, what's that? I go, That's a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> I, remember I have a story where there's a kid vacuuming you sitting down vacuuming it is just crazy That's so funny. um but no I, years ago and then i know my parents would do that too years ago and you know it's like oh things were so much better years ago but even affluent kids in america when they were 16 they would get a job in the summer and tennis kids and i think that's a negative that tournaments go 12 months a year mm-hmm. tournaments are a business oh yeah Everything's and, and, a business. <laughs> and just like, well, let's stop and not have um, late Bobby Curtis. He tried <coughs> here in Florida that one weekend a month was mm-hmm. doubles only. Could only play doubles one, one weekend every month. And people stopped playing that, that week. They took that week off. Wow. And, um, but yeah, that's another thing, too, is that, um, you know, double skills and having – Consistency, whether it's consistency with a coach, consistency with a fitness trainer, a mental performance coach, consistency with a doubles partner. Mm-hmm. That's like one of the most powerful words in tennis, or, or I should say all of sport. Yeah, consistency. But it's, you know, it's just, well, no rhyme or reason, and we're switching directions, and, and get a plan and stick to the plan. And Yeah, yeah. But as soon as uh, one thing goes wrong, right, to the plan, it's, okay, what can I do different? I feel like that, that is always, always happening. I got to do something different now because this isn't working. It's like, let's be patient. Let's be patient. It kind of goes back to what we said earlier about we want everything now. We want results now, right? Whereas in reality, things take time, lots of time. One of the most successful, if not the most successful NHL hockey coach, Scotty Bowman, it's been said that he couldn't be a general manager because if he had one bad game, he'd trade you. <laughs> and uh, with... Uh, but it's like, okay, you can have one bad game. Yeah. You know, that's where, um, you know, you can't judge it moment by moment. I always tell people with goals and getting better, if, just look at it one year at a time. Yeah. Not one tournament at a time, one match at a time, but one year at a time. Mm-hmm. That'll put things in perspective. Yeah. I feel like a lot of times, like you're saying, we get lost in the, we get lost in the moment, right? And it's like, gosh, the last two tournaments I've, Played terrible. It's like, okay, well, let's, let's actually look at this year and what you've done this whole year. Right? And that's a good shift from looking at the small things and taking a minute to say, let's look at the bigger picture now and see see what's gone well. Say, for example, you mentioned a diver or a golfer. Mm-hmm. So a golfer comes to you and you know, they really can't putt or they get the yips or whatever do you connect with the coach the the technical coach no no (sighs) so the sport psych world is growing and i think and i hope um that the future holds um there will be like teams of people right so kind of like in college for the most part right there's a team of professionals support staff that are all talking about the athletes that know everything and they're all working together to get the the player 
to its best, you know, to their best um, potential health wise, mental health wise, right? All overall well being. Um, just right now, it's tough to do that. Um, I have had, and you need, with what I do, you need um, consent with the athlete and the parents to talk with others, you know, like coaches or trainers about what we're talking about. And if they agree to it, then yeah. But the yips are really, uh, and I use a concentration good, uh, night of hers, concentration or tension model. Um, and I call it a tension grid, but really what it talks about is when you over-focus, that's what I was saying earlier in the area of concentration, like mental rehearsal. So that is narrow internal, narrow being small, right. Um, and internal being anything inside your body. So your mind sensations in your body. Um, and so when you over-focus in that area, mental rehearsal, that's usually when you get caught up in your thoughts and your emotions and you're over-focusing on those things to where you get anxious and tight and you can't make a putt, right? Or you can't throw a pitch. Yeah. Um, or you can't hit a forehand, right? And so that's when you say you work on the present moment stuff, um, you work on shifting focus with athletes, small goals to really help them be able to pull out of or separate, really pull out of their mind, pull out of all those thoughts that are happening, right? And uh, separate themselves from those. So shift their attention to lesser focus in that area, to a different area of focus. And once we're able to get there, the body is more free to move. <laughs> more free. Boy, those are two words that uh, tennis players need to hear. <laughs> yeah. Loosen up. Yep, yep. With FM, Brandon Allington, uh, they have this beautiful campus. I think you went to school there years ago. St. Joe's? Yeah. Yep. So it's Pre-K. five tennis courts and nice gymnasium, athletic fields. What about starting early? I mean, don't you think a, an elementary school uh, need to say with what we do, we put together a, um, a body of work, mm-hmm. you know, a curriculum, a pathway. It's a system of systems. And this, the, the sooner someone starts, the better. And then parent education and, and um, don't you think that really elementary kids at the, in the playground need to be taught about winning and losing and how you handle yourself? And Oh, yeah. Yeah. So how much, you know, you, so when you meet someone, you, mm-hmm. uh, everyone's an individual and everyone's different, but um, there's damage control when you... So on our end of it, when we meet someone and we film them and we're looking at their forehands and backhands, mm-hmm. there's damage control and, and you have to go backwards. Same thing with what you do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you start from the beginning. Yeah. Right? And, and it's really where the athletes are at. So if I'm working with a young athlete, it depends where they are developmentally. Um, and some athletes are maybe a bit further developmentally than others. You know, it just depends with the mind. Uh, but really where they're at and then just meeting where they're at, going at a slower pace, going at a faster pace. But at the end of the day, like, I mean, you can teach young kids how to be present. It's just going to take more time, right? You can teach young kids um, about their emotions, 
right? You just do it in fun ways. Watching it inside out. It's a great movie. Teaches you a lot about emotions. It's a great movie. And that's the way that it's going to connect with them or use emojis, right? That's something that I love to do with young kids. Hey, let's look at all the emojis because they're familiar with those and let's label these. Okay, now when you're on your own, you got to label your emoji when you're feeling it. And that just gets them, the sooner that they're able to label their emotions, the better off they're going to be as they get older because they're going to be able to regulate them more. They're going to be able to say, okay, I feel frustrated right now. You know, now let me make a decision, not off my frustration, but let me, let me respond logically. <laughs> Comment on, on this phrase, you're a better person. I, I really believe that young athletes think this. They're a better person if they win. So they're totally missing the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it goes back to the feedback that they get, the way that they perceive it, right? Feedback, not just from, you know, their inner circle, but society, right? Like, I was thinking about this when I read that article about Carlos Alcaraz, and I was like, gosh, every best player, really, a lot of the best players, you really only see the success. How often do you hear about the journey? Yeah, the backstory. Yeah. You have to look for it. You have to look for it. Like, I probably wouldn't have found that article on Carlos Alcaraz, but... I was writing for my blog and I was like, I got to find something that's good for the mental side. Right. So now I'm going down this rabbit hole about Carlos Alcaraz and I found that interview and he talked about his fears. He talked about how long it took him to get there. He talked about how he was never told that he was going to be the best, but he got there. And it's so hard to find that out because once they reach the stage, that's all the, the media and everyone talks about is the stage. They don't talk about, hey, I've done all these things, right? Like Michael Jordan, he had that documentary released like a few years ago, and I don't even, I didn't watch it. I should watch it though. I've heard it's really great, but I don't the, know how. The Last Dance? Yeah. I don't know how much about it, about his journey was on there, but you really don't really hear about that stuff. That's what we need to hear. That's what we need to be teaching. That's what we need to be talking about. Yeah, it's great that they've made it there, but like you said earlier, it's a, it's, I mean, it's an amazing accomplishment, but what did it, why is it amazing? Why is it amazing? Because of what it took to get there. And they failed. Oh, that's something that he said on the interview. I just remembered. It was like, it wasn't always roses. Uh, Alcaraz. Yeah, Alcaraz said, it wasn't always roses. I've suffered a lot along my way. That's actually part of the Spanish uh, system is the word suffer. that you, yeah. ha- you have to suffer. Yeah. With Alcaraz, I mean, he... Certainly we're seeing him now, but he looks like he's just having fun. Yeah, yeah, he does. And, you know, just compete from wire to wire. Well, Michael Jordan, that's a famous story that he got cut from his high school basketball team, but Mm -hmm. the coach wanted him to play, get more playing time, as you say, more minutes playing JV, but also the the gentleman who cut him was in his driveway every night helping him. So, So the backstory. And I've never heard that. I've never heard that part. But he's such a competitor. If you listen to Jordan's Hall of Fame speech, uh-huh. uh, he's still he's still upset, just like Tom Brady's still upset that he got drafted <laughs> like two oh six or whatever it was. Right. But Jordan is still upset that he got cut from that basketball team. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I do think the mind of a crazy competitor. Um, I worked with this uh, gentleman, Welby Van Horn, the late Welby Van Horn, and arguably he was the best player who became the best teacher. He was mm-hmm. so successful at both, mm-hmm. top ten player in the world, and. 
Um, he truly took players from being a beginner to being an advanced player. And he would ask everybody he met, how do you develop a tennis mind? He, he, whoever he met, he would just throw that out there. He wanted to have a conversation. And, you know, you know he, he was not uh, someone who was open and extroverted and gregarious, but he would just yeah. say, he, he was finding a position where he was talking to someone and say, how do you develop a tennis mind? Mm-hmm. And awesome. um, that, that type of answer, I mean, there's obviously volumes and volumes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, how how you do that? Yeah, um, any athlete. But I think with yourself, the two points, you know, two goals, baby steps. Mm-hmm. Take care of step one, step two. Are you just? Are you just? Can you zero in on these two things? Mm-hmm. It's huge. Makes a difference. And then it's you know, not if the ball went in on the other side, but did you execute those things? Like the kid method. The kid method in tennis. Kid. Keep it deep. Can you just keep the ball deep? <laughs> can you just rally? And, you know, I think things, uh, I like what Chris Clore says, uh, people are just launching missiles. <laughs> they have these graphite rackets now. And, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons that pickleball is pickleball. Because when people my age can't play tennis anymore. It's just too fast yeah. because of the technology, because of the rackets. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we could have been creative in tennis and maybe got the adults to play with a green dot ball and a 60-foot court. That 60-foot court probably would have been better for senior citizens than juniors because juniors can run. Senior citizens can't run. With that. So, so some things are backwards, upside down, inside out. Um, with Let's go back to your course. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, I perhaps threw you off course by just because breathing is not chapter. It's just five chapters. Yes. Yep. So what's chapter one? Self-awareness. Chapter two. Goal setting. Chapter three. Routines. Chapter four. Energy management. Chapter five. Visualization. Visualize. Yes. Um, yeah, I think that, um, you know, what do people, what, what picture do you have in your mind? Mm-hmm. You know, I was um, out in Dallas at Brookhaven, and one of the coaches that was trained there went on, and, and now he does some work for the USTA, Bob Neff. And he talked to two players I was there. One was a German, one was a Russian. Mm-hmm. And he said, what image do you have in your mind? Yeah. And the German said, on the run, hitting a one-handed toss, went back and down the line. And the Russian said, you know, he didn't ask him in front of each other. And the Russian said, holding up the trophy. <laughs> so then we, get, we meet with the, all the players afterwards. Yeah. And it had to be like 50 juniors in the room. And he said, this one has problems. You know, the trophy just see themselves winning yeah. and what they really should do the suffering like Alcaraz they just need to see themselves working yeah you know and, and all the I think d- d- players perhaps get tired of it they hear all the mind vitamins if you love the process the process will love you back yeah I mean it's constant but it's also you know how do you do it how do you do it amongst everything that's pulling you in the direction of focusing on the results there's repetition and that's another one that they probably hear all the time, <laughs> repetition. But it is. It's practicing. It's it's practicing on paying attention to the process because a lot of times we don't do that. We focus on the results. So how, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? You practice, practice, practice. How do you, how do you get to Harvard? You study, study, study. <laughs> yeah. what, what are the three secrets of tennis? I like that is practice, practice, practice. But are they 
you know, they practicing the right way. You know, like Roger Federer, I think it's a great line. We touched upon it not too long ago. Um, he said, I didn't know you were supposed to win in practice. Or you're working on things. Yes. You know, it's like a musician. Going, I like that. It's like a musician. I only know one song. Oh, I'm not going to learn a second song because I'm not going to be very good at it. Right. Right. Ed. Ed Sheeran. Yeah. Ed Sheeran. I like Ed Sheeran because he doesn't have a cell phone. I started re- talking about rabbit hole. I started reading about Ed Sheeran. Yeah. And he's on a talk show. And they're talking, just telling him how great he is. And he goes, wait a minute. He's uh, got his shoulder bag. He digs through his shoulder bag. He pulls out an iPad. He goes, let's listen to this. And he goes, this is from five and a half years ago, four and a half years ago. I think it was five and a half. But he goes, mm-hmm. this is me. And, oh, and boy. even the people in the audience, I mean, I know nothing about swimming, nothing about basketball. I know nothing about singing. <laughs> and it was awful. Really? I, mean, I could tell it was awful. And he goes, I was crummy. You know, Braden, everybody starts out crummy. Mm-hmm. And that's where too much of an emphasis winning early on. There's too much of an emphasis. Yeah. You know, 64, <coughs> excuse me, 64 10-year-olds play a tournament. Who wins one 10-year-old? Yeah. Yeah, put it, put it in perspective. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little about Chapter 4, energy. Energy management. So understanding what your best zone is. So there's different zones um, where we could all perform well. And that goes more into the course, but we need to understand that for ourselves, right? Some people perform better when they're high energy, some better low energy. So it's becoming aware of that and then figuring out ways to to get you to that zone, right? And so I teach two exercises. Um, I give two exercises to either lower your energy or bring it up. Um, and that's so important, right? And I talked earlier about energy with your emotions because they do bring whether it's low energy or high energy they bring some sort of energy and understanding how to channel that so energy's i mean it's really big in anything that you do but it's how can you use what you have how can you get to what you where you want to be um and how to channel when energy that you didn't expect to be there is there (laughs) how about sleep with, uh, you, you know, are you a morning person, a evening person? You know, when you get up in the morning, you own the city. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's just go, 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 get things done. Mm-hmm. But do you have to play, your players monitor their sleep? Um, I don't have a monitor it. I do ask about it, though, because that is very important to know, uh, depending, you know, if I do need to refer out or something, depending on other tendencies. Uh, but... If they feel like they're they are having trouble sleeping, um, you know, sleep rituals are really good. So like routines for like a wind down routine is really helpful because sleep is important to get right, um, and, and it's a good form of recovery. <clears throat> it's important, so don't necessarily monitor it, but I do ask about it. Do make sure check in on it um, because again, they need to be they need to be getting sleep because it's again part part of how we recover and coming back to technology, they need to measure how much screen time they have per day Yeah, with um, here in the States. Uh, people are going to look at me cross. They have looked at me cross-eyed in the past. Is mm-hmm. I've run tennis camps where the players sleep on an air mattress on the tennis court. Of course, the tennis court is air conditioning in Europe. Um, that's quite common. Oh, really? Quite common where kids oh. will take a train and they'll, um, the tennis club will have mats and the kid brings a sleeping bag and they cut out the hotel bill. Wow. So tennis isn't quite as expensive. Mm-hmm. It's the easiest way to 
supervised players. <coughs> so the girls, you know, indoor, you know, you got six indoor courts, and the girls go this way, and they mm-hmm. use the girls' locker room, and the boys go this way, and they stand this side of the, yeah. the tennis hall. And um, you turn all the lights off, and it looks like a Christmas tree. Really? Every kid is in bed <laughs> with their phone. So mom and dad are listening to our podcast. Uh-huh. We always tell people when you go home, ideally what you should do is just take your phone and put it on the kitchen counter. And kids should go to bed earlier and they should get up earlier. Yeah. And they should, you know, in the pubescent stage, they need to get more sleep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, your your prefrontal cortex grows. It doesn't stop growing until you're around 25, 26. And it grows when you sleep. It develops while you sleep. So it's important for kids to sleep because that's, how your, that's when your brain develops. <laughs> Yeah, and even old so. people, I need to sleep more. Yeah. <laughs> that's, some, that's an area where I haven't done too well over the years. But, uh, yeah, your brain brain needs to rest. Mm-hmm. But going off that too, right, so a lot of times I'll ask, because uh, this is like the number one, I always get this, uh, you want your bed only for sleep. Because if, if you're doing other activities in your bed, your brain's going to start to disassociate your bed with sleep. Right? If you're only sleeping in it, as soon as you lay down, your bed's like, bedtime, time to sleep. Right. Um, so I always ask athletes, okay, you on the phone while you're laying down in bed? Are you watching TV while you're laying in bed? Are you um, eating in bed? Right. All these things. And yeah, yeah. Okay. Knock it all out. No more. <laughs> Only sleeping. Because um, then you're going to train your brain again to, to associate bed with, with sleep only. It reminds me, I took a graduate course. I easily, by far, was the dumbest person in the room. It was all these medical people. It was the biochemistry. It was way over my head. Mm-hmm. So a professor comes in, a guy named Dr. Sloan, and he had all these paperback books, and he threw each person three. Mm-hmm. And one of the ones that was thrown to me was called the one-room diet. And said, if you just eat in one place, you know, you just, it, it all really comes down to routine, organization. Yeah. You know, with the brain typing, in a lot of ways, it's very good to be a P, a perceiver, where you're flexible, you're easygoing. Yeah. But people need the P's need to have a J in their life. Yeah. You know, like the, the parents, um, the parents can't go to bed before the kids. You know, just common sense. They've got they've got to go to bed. Um, you know, before I say a tennis kid who's not a homeschooler, before they leave the house, um, they need to do routines. And, you know, if you know, they're leaving the house, you know, can you get up and do 20 minutes for your tennis? And you only have to shadow swing technically in front of a mirror for, you know, 48 seconds, we'll get it done. Just mm-hmm. do each stroke slowly. You're talking about visualization. Yeah. Um, and then certainly the type of exercises that you as a mental performance coach would give, but then also then the body, you know, with, yeah. with the, um, you know, the, every, and that's one thing that Brandon's done under this. <laughs> under this roof, there's 6,200 square feet, is he has an expert from every field. Yeah. Um, but, you know, do the do, do people realize that they need to, okay, okay, the body, the, the nutrition and the strength, everything that goes with that, and then the mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, give us some examples of uh, energy. Um, you know, some guy or some gal, they're just, down and out, what do, you do, what do you try to do to get them to have a higher energy level? Their work ethic has to improve. They're lazy. Have you ever uh, ever called anybody lazy? Lazy. I, I've met a few lazy people. <laughs> yeah, I consider myself lazy, but most people I know consider me to be a workaholic. Yeah. Um, it's all relative. Uh, yeah. 
depends on I would I would uh, explore why they're lazy. Sometimes you get procrastination because uh, it's like the it's perfectionism, but the opposite end of it. So there's such a fear of not doing the task correctly or how they're going to feel if they don't do it perfect that they just avoid it at all costs and they don't do it, right? And so if that's the case, then it's like, okay, well, we got to unpack that. We got to talk about these fears and talk about how we can address that. Um, If it's, you know, I feel like that's usually the, the case, with, with a lot of people, it's just they don't want to feel what they're going to feel if they do the activity. Like, I can tell you right now, I every day, right, I have a list of things that I want to do for, for my business. <laughs> Most of the time, I'm picking the easy stuff, right? The stuff that's not going to um, really be taxing on me because I don't want to feel frustrated or feel dumb or, you know, as I'm completing yeah. it. Yeah, they say successful people, they, they do what they don't like to do first thing in the morning. Yep. And that's, and that's what it takes. But in order to do that, it's recognizing, and that's what I have to do most of the time. It's, hey, right now I see what I'm doing. I'm avoiding those tasks that I need to get done because I don't want to feel those things or go down that rabbit hole in my mind of whatever it tells me, so I'm just not going to do it. Okay, we're good. Let's just do it. Like tackle it right now. Um, but it's it's being able to recognize that and unpa- uh, unpack that and separate from that. Don't put the pro in procrastination. Mm-hmm. In running, the, f- the toughest step is the first step out the door. Most American juniors, mom and dad, they don't have running shoes. They don't have a running program. And the first step is, 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 is the one out the door. That's mm-hmm. the toughest one. Yep, toughest one. But with running, um, that's one thing about tennis is... You know, people put hours and hours of practice in, mm-hmm. but a lot of times it's just hitting balls. Yeah, they're not. They're not. They're, they don't have a running program. But I think you know that that line energy makes energy. You know, if, you know, I, I you know, why do people eat at McDonald's? This is not a commercial for McDonald's, but they eat at McDonald's because they eat at McDonald's. Yeah. If they eat the lousy food on Monday, they're going to be running a little bit slow on Tuesday, and then they just. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, people need to sometimes do a one eighty. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. And that ties into, right, like we rely, there's all this talk around motivation and relying on it, but it's not reliable because a lot of times we're not motivated to do the hard stuff. We just do it. And then guess what? Motivation comes after, right? Like once I get into that task, then I'm like, I don't want to stop because I'm like, I'm going now, right? I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. And similar to what you said, if it's the opposite side of just continuing to put it off, you're just feeding that, right? But what are you what are you going to do to stop it and recognize it and um, make the change? Then once you make the change, getting that first step out the door, it's not hard to put the next next foot in front of the other. I think another thing, too, is um, you, you could comment on perfection. Vince Lombardi, we're going to chase perfection and catch excellence. I think that people want to go from from awful to awesome. They're, they're getting an F and running as a tennis player, and they want to get an A. It's not like, okay, I'm going to run every day. Mm-hmm. You know, just make the goal um, where measurable, attainable, they're, they're going to conquer the goal. They're going to, yeah. okay, three days a week. We tell people, just do 10 minutes of yoga. Yeah. Go to YouTube, pick out a 10-minute yoga program, and just 
three days a week and then get yeah. the chart and you're either a hero or a zero. Mm-hmm. And then people come to visit and I tell, tell them when we, you know, they go, especially the teenage boys is that, you know, I can, let's have a conference call. I'll call your parents up. I'll talk to you in two weeks. Mm-hmm. And da, 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 like a typewriter, I can ask all these questions. Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? And it's, no, no, no. Um, but I do think, again, it's screen time. Mm-hmm. It's time management. We've met the enemy, the enemy's us, and um, they don't know how much time they're wasting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you got to stop. You got to recognize that. That's the key. That's the first key is recognize when, when the time is a wasting. Let me give you the countdown again. One is? Self-awareness. Two is? Goal setting. Three is? Routines. Four is? Energy management. Five. Visualization. Visualization. Um, <clears throat> Billie Jean King, you have to see it to be it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, top athletes, when they get together and reminisce, they don't talk about winning. They talk about the crazy coach and how hard they work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. Going back to the journey. Yeah. Yeah, it is the journey that's, you know, but I think that's where people are hung up on just the destination this weekend. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. a 12 and under tournament, 14 and under tournament. Mm-hmm. No, it's been great having you on as a podcast, on the podcast as a guest um, with, I have your business card right here. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell people how they can get a hold of you. Okay. So you, my Instagram is at coach Nicole period E. Um, and on there, you can click the link in my bio. It takes you to my website. It takes you to my course. Um, and that's really, and you can email me from there. So I would say that's the best way, easiest way, at Coach Nicole, period, E. And that will email, website, course, if you're interested. That's all all on there. Or DM me on Instagram. That works, too. It's great. FM Performance Center, Boynton Beach, yep. Florida, I'll, I will put that. We don't have show notes. Okay. You know, we need to do some. We have so many people telling us they like our lengthy podcast. Yeah. That um, <laughs> have show notes, but I'll, I'll put that in our um, the write up. Tell us okay. one more time the Instagram. So is. it's at Coach Nicole, period E. And then you can also FM Performance, right? Talk yeah. Home. Yep. That's the website. So give us a send off here. If, you know, one thing, I mean, obviously you could, you could say so many things, but which is, you know, one or two things of closing uh, to summarize, um, giving advice to you know, parents and players. And obviously we're a, a tennis podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, what would be a couple bullet points for you? Like boom, boom, boom. Yeah. I mean, you've already, you've already nailed those, but what would be just to close out this podcast? Uh, process, process, process. That was the main theme, I feel like, throughout the whole thing. And then the second thing would be your normal, your fears, your worries. You're normal and you're human, and you're going to have those. And that's what's first. Then yeah. you're the athlete. Oh, that's great. Um, I think it was Yogi Berra said that um, baseball such and such. Um, baseball is... Um, what his comment was, it didn't add up to 100%. That was a joke. Mm-hmm. And baseball is, you know, I think he said baseball is 30% hitting 
in 90% mental. <laughs> so it didn't really add up to 100%. Right, but right. Um, no, really with the, the four parts of tennis, it all comes down to the mental emotions first. Mm-hmm. You know, they're technical, tactical, physical, and they're all one. We had the words statistical. Again, Coach K takes a five fingers like a basketball team. They're weak this way, but this way they become a team. I like that. But it's really what, you know, you know Brandon's vision of putting everybody under one roof who uh, is an expert in each area. Yeah become a better tennis player but again nicole it's been great to have you on our website why don't you turn turn and wave to the camera and anyone everyone uh 112 is in the books thanks for listening thanks nicole thank you adios amigos